Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York, some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hey folks, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from the earlier years of the podcast. This year, as a part of our fundraising effort to keep Risk in existence during what has been such a stressful year of financial crisis for us, we're looking back at some of the greatest stories that have ever been told on risk as a way of showing how irreplaceable, how well worth saving this podcast is. Today, you're going to hear a story that people constantly tell us is one of their favorites. David Crabb's story, For the Love of Charlie, that David recorded with me in my apartment in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, in the spring of 2018, when he was fresh in the grieving process for his beloved dog, Charlie. And then afterward, we've recorded this special brand new conversation about the story between David and Kate LaSala, who is a pet death doula. If you ever talk to someone who is grieving the loss of a pet, send them a link to this episode as it's sure to be helpful to them. And now, without further ado, here is David Crabb with a story we call For the Love of Charlie. So when I was a little boy, I had lots and lots of dogs up until the age of about 12, and dogs kind of came and went willy-nilly. This is for multiple reasons. My parents got divorced when I was two. There were multiple engagements and boyfriends and girlfriends and marriages and divorces. And I remember feeling like, especially like as I got older, knowing I was closeted and I was like a queer kid in Texas, I always kind of felt like that Pinocchio thing, you know, like wanting to be a real boy. Part of this thing about a new boyfriend or a new wife was like, oh, I'm closer to like a nuclear family now, right? Like I'm gonna be a boy and I, and I would try all the things. I would try to play sports. 
we would go to church. I remember sitting in church and even in a young age being like, God, they're so into this and like there's no proof. Like what's happening? Everything that I did around family kind of felt like that. Athletics didn't feel right. Every time a ball came at me, I just ran away. Like I couldn't stay there and catch it. But the one part of all of these comings and goings of this nuclear family were dogs. Like the dog felt right. For all the ways that I wanted to be like a boy with like a sister and a house who like goes to church and has a baseball mitt, it never worked out. But the dog was always the only part of it that I really, really missed. There was uh, Brandy and Ginger, two German Shepherds. One of them had to wear a muzzle around me at first because she wanted to destroy me, that was Brandy. And one night I walked into the kitchen as a little boy and she was growling at me and I thought she was gonna kill me and my mom's boyfriend came in and said stop and there was a scorpion on the floor between us. And Brandy had been standing over it and that night I went to bed and Brandy slept in the bed with me. And she did every night after that. But that ended because that relationship got volatile and like we had to kind of like leave under cover of night and my mom and I had to get out of the house and I always remember going to my mom's Chevette with like my garbage bag of stuff. And as we were packing back and forth trying to be quiet, when we finally get ready to leave, we go to the car and the doors had been open and sitting in the passenger and driver's seat were each of the dogs just staring at us, just like smiling like, we'll go with you guys. And we had to like plead with them through tears to like get out of the car. And if you've ever tried to like make an animal excited to move while you're like openly like sobbing and trying to keep the noise down because it's two in the morning and you gotta get to an Econolodge, it's really fucking difficult. There was another dog named Shelly that was my stepmother's. They had a, a rough go of it. And I remember my stepmother left one morning for a jog with Shelly and never came back. That was the way she ended that marriage. And that was the last time I saw uh, Shelly. And even growing up, I loved dogs. If I was like on acid at a party in high school and everyone was like having fun, I'd be like, there's a dog here. And you'd find me like in the corner with huge pupils, just like talking to a dog, like that was my jam. Years and years later, I'd been with my boyfriend, Jack, for like six or seven years. And we had gone through this crazy thing where we found this deformed kitten that had lateral paralysis. The vet wanted to put it down and we nursed it back to health. Would have been great if I wasn't allergic to cats, but once we got her up on her feet and her sister who was also in the house, it was a nightmare. So we had to find them a house and get rid of them. But it planted this seed. It made me realize I, I love caring for a thing and Jack had never grown up with animals and was like, I wanna do that. Like he was bummed about it. He's not allergic. He was like, I want that black cat, you know? So years later we decided, you know, let's do it. So we looked online uh, at these dogs. There was like a dog meet and greet, Brooklyn Badass Animal Rescue is the name of this place. We went to this meet and greet. We found this like medium-sized orange dog that was really beautiful. I forget his name, but we were gonna meet him. He was kind of like a, he was medium-sized, but he was like a man's dog. We weren't gonna be one of those gay couples that had one of those like tiny like Paris Hilton things. We were like, no chihuahuas, no teacups, no apple heads. And we go to the dog meet and greet and we find the dog, big orange dog sitting in the corner and we go up to it. And you know, as much as I love dogs and connect with them, as I told you, this dog just had like no je ne sais quoi. And a lot of the time with these rescue dogs, like they're still in a state of like shock. So I kept trying to tell myself that, but the dog just didn't seem into us. It just didn't seem like it was clicking. And at one point we're on our hunches and we're petting the dog trying to get it to activate. And it starts growling and it strips its teeth and literally like slobber. And I'm like, it's like a Cujo moment. And I look and it's growling at something coming up to us. This little white dog, probably like 10, 11 pounds. He's got a black, like Martin Scorsese eyebrow over one eye, a few little black freckles underneath this little coat it's wearing. And his ass is shaven. There's, his ass is like a pink square of skin with like a Frankenstein scar with like 20 stitches on it. And he's holding up his right back leg. He's tripoding over, just like hobbling over. 
And I'm like, oh my God, this dog that we came to meet is going to destroy this little dog. And the little dog just kind of really blank stared, like looked at the dog snarling. And then just brushed past him and looked at us like, anyway, bitch, what's up with you guys? And Jack always remembers me looking at him and he's like, that's the moment. Like I looked at him like, this is the one. You know, like that was the Charlie Brown Christmas tree that I wanted. The little messed up missing branches. Like I was like, that's the one. Now, the dog as we left, they were like, oh, you're taking Big Daddy? They had named this dog Big Daddy, and as a smaller-statured man, I was like, don't mock the dog, you know? But it was really, really cute, and for a while, he was Big Daddy. We took him home, and over the next week or two, we got to know him, and he was adorable and cute. We didn't know if we wanted to change his name. He was punk. He was Rex. He was a few things. And then we thought maybe we should keep Big Daddy. That's what he came with. They found him in Alabama after a storm. The reason he had those stitches is because he busted his leg and he was in a kill shelter, and the bones had just grown. He was just sitting there for two months with the bones growing into place. So when they saved him, they saw that like he'd been through a lot, right? And I was like... He's Big Daddy. You know, these people in Selma. I actually had to call Selma once to get doctor's records. And I always remember this woman was like, yeah. And I said, Big Daddy, do you remember? Do we remember? Eartha, they got Big Daddy. He is in New York City. Oh, my God. I mean, like, they, like, love this dog. He had lived, like, apparently on a bed under, like, the receptionist's office for, like, a month while he was healing. So we thought that the name was really meaningful and we should keep it. And then one day we were leaving my apartment. I'll always remember... I was locking up the apartment, and Jack, my boyfriend, is six and a half feet tall, and I'm a smaller guy, so it's all I'm always like kind of Melania Trumping behind him. Do you know what I mean? Like, wait for me, Donald, because he walks so fast without walking fast at all. And we live in this little Polish neighborhood in Brooklyn, where there are these like women in moo's that watch the street through their box fans that hold up the window. Do you know what I'm talking about? And I always remember as I ran to catch up with them, I said. Big Daddy, wait, Big Daddy! And I always remember this like Polish woman grimacing, like this tiny homosexual yelling to this big man homo lover. And that was like the, the afternoon I was like, we're changing his fucking name. He's not Big Daddy. You can be my big daddy. So very shortly after that, he became Charlie, which we thought was like singular and his. And then we went to the dog park and it was like, Charlie, 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 Charlie. Totally, totally common. But it was really, really uh, fitting for him. We lived in a railroad apartment, and he would love, like, running back and forth and catching the ball. He'd do that just for hours. He would really get under the sheets at night. And one of my favorite things the first few weeks we had him is he would go all the way under the sheets, and I would wake up before I got used to him being there and have this feeling I was being watched. And I would look, and it would be like a ghost dog. It was just the shape of a blanket, you know, like of a Halloween ghost, you know, with the kid with the holes in it, of just his head under the blanket just... Like with wheezing watching me and I was like, this is terrifying and adorable. I love them. And he loved sunlight, you know, in our little apartments on the second floor, the angle of light was weird. But that little time of day when that little like square of sunlight, he would just follow that, just cooking like a burrito. I'd go and I'd touch him and I'd be like, dude, you're going to like burn up under the heat lamp, you know, he was like a fast food burger, just cooking and cooking. But he loved it. He was a Chihuahua Jack Russell, about 11, 12 pounds on a fat day, 13 and a half, if it was winter. But um, I always tried to like pound him down at the vet, which is so funny, like he was a human. He would be like, David, I'm on a diet. But really, really cute, little black specks. And he looked a lot like a chihuahua, but if people ever met him that had ever had a Jack Russell, they were like, that dog's part Jack Russell. Like it was a real thing you could see about him. His ears were burnished like dry leaves. When they burn, they kind of get like the sizzle around. The heat. They were white, but they have a little black around the edge, little black dot over his eye. And 
I always remember I probably had him two, two or three weeks, and I'm walking him in Williamsburg. He's in a little jacket, just looking all cute. And we walk by this Thai restaurant, and there's this like German-looking tourist guy. And he looks like he's like a German theater. He's got big old chains. He's in like funky Adidas pants and high tops, and he's got the big cans and big headphones on. So cool on his phone. And he looks at Charlie and he lights up. He becomes like a child. And in broken English, he says, Oh, this dog is like the dog of a boy from a story. I I kind of wanted to just melt and like hug him. But I had to be like, yeah, he's pretty cool, huh? But it was like he said the thing in his broken English that was like the thing I wanted from a dog. That was what I wanted to feel, you know? And that was what Charlie gave me. He just immediately kind of activated life and in a way like took me back to my youth and all those times that I loved dogs and lost them but he was like mine now after we got Charlie and I was putting together my solo show Bad Kid it really was kind of like as much as I'm joking about the dog of a boy from a story and, and I have no illusions that dogs make magic happen but for me I really do feel like something happened right around then where I just came into my own. Like, everything feels like it kind of lit up, you know? I was with this guy that I'd been with for years. We were going to get married. I published a book. You know, all these just great things happened. And and it felt like I had a family and a life, and the dog was really part of it. It was, like, intrinsic to it. And when I was sick, because I had Crohn's disease, you know, that was a big thing about Charlie. He was a really energetic dog. But when I was sick with Crohn's disease and really, really ill and on the couch, it was like whatever that little engine is in him that was like constant play, constant food, it just shut off. He just laid with me and there was no bothering me. It was like, it was like he knew he would just stay with me unless there was like a patch of sunlight somewhere on the floor when he was like following that around, like cooking like a burrito, you know? And in a lot of ways, like I kind of feel like we were alike, which a lot of people say about their dogs, I know. But he kind of had this bad hip. I kind of had like, because of my Crohn's, like a bad hip. When it would get rainy or wintry, I'd become like a grumpy, like a vet. You know, it's like, you know, storms are coming, uh, like my back hurts. And when winter, there was no patch of light for Charlie. And in a lot of ways for me, like winter became increasingly hard. So my husband's an actor, Jack, and he wanted to act in a different way. So we were like, let's move to Los Angeles. And we were very excited about doing this um, together, all three of us. When we moved, a lot of dramatic good and bad stuff happened. You know, my book came out right before we moved. And then in the aftermath of that, it just felt like you know, my father stopped talking to me. He, he cut me out of his life for no reason I'll know. I'll assume it's because my book was super queer. Uh, a month before I was going to get married to Jack, which was its own kind of big change, uh, my appendix almost exploded. I had to have an emergency removed. And then a week later, some horrible infection happened. I had to go back to the hospital and I was there for like a week, 10 days. And then we took this great road trip. And, you know, L.A. was great and beautiful. And we were so happy. And Charlie was just always cooking like a burrito, like wherever he wanted. But then it was, you know, 2016. And that year was traumatic. You know, we're in a new place. The election was happening. All of my exchanges online seemed to be loaded with, like, a lot of animosity. I had to lose some people I care about a lot. And it just sort of felt like a difficult time. Difficult or at least full of change. But the thing about it was that, like, Charlie was always there, you know. I depend on my husband. He's my rock. We've been together 15 years from right now. I love him. But that little dog was like a different kind of rock. I think anyone that's had a pet understands that difference. The way you commune with an animal and need it and it maybe needs you is not like a human. And it was always good to have Charlie there for all of that. I mean, when we even got married, he's on our wedding cards. Like our wedding cards, it's like J and D and then like a drawing of his face. Because like I said, we're not homos with a little white dog. That is the faggiest thing. I can't believe I just said that. Anyway, it's true. 
But LA was great. Charlie could run and play and there was always sun. I remember these great days. I became obsessed with Grace Jones right when we moved. And I would endlessly play Grace Jones' record. There was a song called Bullshit. Have you ever known it from Warm Weather? I'm sick and tired of this bullshit. I would just listen to that song and it was almost like Charlie would dance. Like he knew that I was energized and the sun was out. And he just seemed more playful. Like he really lit up when we were there. Now Charlie was about seven. He wasn't an old dog, but he started to show some weird traits. His head seemed to be cocked to the side sometimes, and when he lowered it to eat, it was almost like he had vertigo. He would get dizzy, so they thought it was a neck problem, and then he would sort of stumble, have issues around stairs, and then they thought, well, it's a vertebrae lower down, and he should live in a cage for a while, which was its own kind of nightmare. I'm like, I don't know how I put this energetic little thing that loves dancing to Grace Jones in a cage, and I tried it, and then I always remember, you know, this was about a month into these rolling diagnoses, I came into the living room and he was having a full seizure. His nose was stuck in the cage because I guess he was sticking it through wanting out when it happened. I just remember his body, like the weight of it hanging and on his snout. And I just screamed and I, I got him out of it and I held him and we took him back. So they got him on drugs for seizures and he was on a lot of prednisone and steroids and he seemed to be holding his own. The seizures went away. He had a couple more that were pretty intense that I had to hold him through with the full freaking out and snarling and foaming. But the drug seemed to make him better. And we very quickly found ourselves in that like cyclone of what's wrong. It wasn't that we were getting a specific diagnosis, it's that they did not know. There was no choice to make about how good or bad is he. They were like, well, let's figure it out and then we'll move on. So Christmas rolled around and we took him to Texas to see my mom and she had woven him a blanket she wanted to give him. And he was as much a part of that family in Texas as he was in Brooklyn with me and Jack. And towards the end of that trip, it was a fun trip because Jack's sister and my nephew Leo, this beautiful little five-year-old kid who I adore, were moving from Pennsylvania to where we lived. And Leo is half black and they lived in a part of Pennsylvania where after Trump, some weird signs went up. You know, eh, you know what I'm talking about. There was a Confederate flag in a window. So I was kind of excited about moving even more of my family through my family's home in Texas to get them to like California. It was really exciting. But we noticed near the end of that trip that Charlie was circling and it seemed like he was hungry and scavenging, but the circles were getting tighter. On the way back, he crapped all over this hotel room. I remember I walked in and I was like, why does this hotel room smell? And we realized that he had taken a dump the moment we got in and we had proceeded to track it over the entire hotel room. There was just crap everywhere which was unlike him. And then we got back home and it was January 2nd. At 11 a.m. that morning, we'd moved into this beautiful house three months earlier where Charlie had had a yard and could run. We could just let him out. We never really had that. And the landlords that had signed a two-year lease with us told us, sorry, we're moving and we have to take the house away from you. We're still processing this and where we're gonna go and what we're gonna do when Charlie has a seizure. He's in the backyard and I go to pick him up and he screams and his skin is reactive to touch. It's like he thinks he's being hurt. He falls over and we take him back to the hospital. They give him some drugs. They say, oh, he's fine, but his heart rate was up. And when we bring him home, I pick up a dog that's like not my dog. He's wheezing constantly in pain, like, and they're like, oh, it's the drugs that'll wear off. He does it all night and the next morning we wake up and he's in so much pain that we move him to go outside in the crate. And he stumbles around and he falls over. We take him back to the hospital and they give him chemotherapy because they say his heart rate's so high, whatever's wrong with him, it's gotta be some kind of tumor or cancer. And it's weird because we're giving him preventative chemotherapy, which is a thing I never would have thought that I would done for a dog or that was even a thing. 
And I always remember when they told us, they were like, just so you know, we think this is probably a brain tumor or a condition called encephalitis, but it could be toxoplasmosis. So you need to know if it is toxoplasmosis, the chemotherapy you're signing up to give him will kill him. And I remember saying, so you're telling me right now that I have to take emergency action to save my pet, but there's a small chance that the thing I'm doing will kill him straight away. And they say yes. And that was, I remember, the first of what would become just an ongoing, rolling series of like emotional blackouts, just like these tense moments where we made these choices. They were financial choices and emotional choices where we just couldn't let this dog go because what happened over the next few weeks was he just proceeded to fall apart right in front of our eyes for no reason that they could really put a finger on. It was a set of things that they couldn't know. He wandered around the house in circles. He was confused. He peed everywhere. He couldn't navigate stairs. Sometimes it was almost like the world to his left wasn't there. He couldn't see anything. We would find him standing in the corner. And on Leo's first day of school, this, my little nephew that I was so happy to bring to LA to be a part and have him in this like new life and this new culture. It was his first day of school and he walked out in his backpack. And right when he looked at Charlie, Charlie looked at him. And then Charlie just screamed. It was just a scream of pain and he fell over. And it was like he died, his tongue fell out of his mouth. And I picked him up and Leo's mother, my sister-in-law was trying to scoop Leo up. And I remember Leo just so sweetly being like, is Charlie okay? And we're like, yeah. And you know, if you've ever had that situation where you're, you're so terrified, but you have to kind of modulate your reaction to keep a kid calm. I've never had to do that. And we put Charlie in the car and we drove him like down the highway, like breakneck speed. I remember screaming at Jack, hurry. And he's like, I'm going 70 miles an hour, you know? And we literally handed Charlie in a blanket over a desk and we knocked over a cup of coffee and a cup of pens and they just took him. And they knew us at this point at this hospital, like he'd been in there a few times. And they said that whatever it was that was wrong, it was gonna need real treatment. A day later, he managed to make it through the night. They kept him going on this crazy drug called mannitol, which is like the cure-all for any kind of brain inflammation. They did MRIs and they found that he had a swelling on the right side of his brain. They had no idea what it was. And we went to a neurologist at a cancer center on the other side of town. Now, if you've ever graduated from like the animal ER to like the specialty center, it's strange. You're there for your little dog and they're bringing you like coffee and tea and people are asking if you need anything. And it, it's nice, but it feels heavy. It feels like, oh, we've graduated to like something bigger. So... We met with a neurologist who said, your dog is fading away really quickly. Ideally, what I would wanna do is a, a month long series of radiations that will cost probably like four or $5,000. And we'd spent four or five at this point. And he said, we have to put your dog under 16 times to do this. Your dog will not survive that process. But there's a special thing, we've only done it 400 times. I do it, it's only done here and in New York at one place. And it's called stereotactic radiation. We do it over a week in three different radiations, outpatient. And it costs, I haven't said this out loud, and it costs $14,000. You know, Jack and I are artists. We don't have a lot of money, but I have that rainy day credit card with a 29% APR, like at the bottom of a box. And I was like, I have to do it. You know, and we asked the doctor, we were like, we're not those people that want to hear bullshit. You know what I mean? tell us. And he's like, guys, I would be really honest. We're not in the business of keeping people hanging on. Your dog is totally healthy. He's so young. He has a mass in one part of his brain. It's focal. We can point at it. It hasn't spread anywhere. He's the ideal candidate for this thing. If you want to do it. 
So we said, yeah, I mean, we, of course we're going to do it. So we're trying to be excited. We check Charlie into the treatment center and they do the first night and the first night they're supposed to do it. And the next morning we pick him up and we come home and they call us and they say, he's had just about the worst response we've ever seen to this. He's almost in a coma-like state. There's no way that he can leave tonight. So we're going to have to keep him and hold off on the second radiation to see if he survives what we've done. You know, whenever you go and do these things, there's the very nice gay guy with spiky hair and an iPad, and he was, we called him the messenger of doom. He meant no harm, but he would come in with the iPad with the dollar sign and the number and the checks, and you'd shove your fingerprint on it. And all of a sudden, that number that we'd agreed to that seemed so impossible just grew, and we just kept... That number, once the dog is not outpatient and he's there for five days, it just grew, and we just said, we'll do it, and we found veterinary credit cards that you can get. And those days, we just kept our phones on, and we, they were like, stay by your phone, and they'd call in the morning and say, be by your phone today, you know? It just felt like constantly, like, hanging on. And I remember about the fifth night, Jack, when it was in the backyard, and I heard him, like, sobbing, and he's kind of the rock, and I'm, like, the emotional weirdo. And I went back there, and he was weeping, and I said, babe, are you okay? And I knew he wasn't okay, but the reaction for him was very strong. And he said, it just occurred to me that he might not make it. I remember it was so weird, because... My first thought was, wow, I haven't had a moment where I thought he would. And it was such a strange thing to think about in terms of our relationship and my natural instincts and my pessimism and the way that I'm always looking for, like, what is that thing? How is the story going to get fucked up, right? About three days later, they get him good enough that they can do the next radiation treatment, which is amazing. We didn't think he was going to make it. And they do the next one. And the next morning, they say, he's doing pretty good. He's doing pretty good. I think it's going to work. And the whole time we're working towards this, what we're working for is an estimated 17 to 25 months of life extension, just to give you an idea of what we're signing on this dotted line for, like what we're paying for. And it makes sense every time you think of like two more years. And I keep telling myself, you know, like we adopted him as this like busted little thing from a hurricane in Alabama. Like it's our duty. It doesn't matter how much it costs, you know? I just want him to make it through the process. And... The morning of the third process, it's the last one, and it's only 48 hours later, the way it was supposed to have been between all of them. I call and I'm like, how is he? And they say, he's had a grand mal seizure this morning and we had to intubate him. And I remember having someone told me they had to intubate my dog and weeping out of feeling so bad for what that's like for him. And also just seeing that iPad with that thumbprint and imagining like the tension of what does that mean? for that dollar sign. Like, where are we? Like, I didn't even know where we were anymore. And you know, once you're in the gauntlet, you're just in. And the doctor tells me, I say, well, what you're gonna do this morning, kill him? And the doctor says, man, at this point, I'm looking at your chart. I'm looking at all the things you've done. Can you live with yourself not killing him from the third of the last part? Do you know what I mean? Can you not do the last part and just think it's humane? And I said, no. And they did it. And that afternoon, they said he seemed fine. And the next morning, they said, he's fucking amazing. And they actually said that because they knew us at this point, all of these people. Because during this whole process, I went and visited him. And every night I would stay there. And they would bring me food sometimes. And they would come and hang out with him. And all the receptionists knew us. So they would talk to us like that. They were like, he fucking made it. <laughs> and the next day, they said, come pick him up. And we got to go pick him up. and. 
At this point, he was shaved all over. He was just pink splotches, his ankles from all the IVs. He looked like he'd just been through it. And I remember Leo, when we got him home, looked at him and very sweetly, like, whispered, because he didn't want to insult Charlie. He pointed at one of the pink patches on him and said, is Charlie made of ham? And I got to explain, no, he's made of dog. He just is shaved in a lot of spots, buddy. And it was nice. Like, I felt like I had my family back, you know. And the house had been a pain in the ass because, you know, we were losing it. And we were dealing with all these numbers and how much they pay for breaking the lease and trying to be nice people. We'd come home and there would be like people in our house that were strangers and people would come by unannounced. And it was like hellish, but like for all of this dramatic stuff, like I had my dog back. I went back to that feeling of like, it can all go pear-shaped, but like I have you. And not only do I have you, like I won you. I looked at him and all his like little pink patches and I would walk him and people would look at him, you know, and I'd been that person looking at a dog with patches and stuff and thought, you know, he's on his way out. And I, I remember wanting to tell people, no, fuck you. He made it. You know what I mean? Like, he's not on his way out. These are like battle scars, you know? About a month and a half ago, this thing started to happen where Charlie was on a thousand pills and I was always giving him so much peanut butter. Our whole house smelled like fucking peanut butter from the peanut butter and the pill and on the finger and put the peanut butter in the spoon and drop the spoon and the prednisone. I had charts and graphs for the seizure pill and the steroid and all this stuff. And I went to give him this pill and he couldn't find it. He couldn't find the peanut butter and I was holding the spoon right in front of his face. And I moved it to the left and it was all of a sudden like it appeared in his world. And it was so strange and it was this, I had this feeling, but I ignored it. I was like, this isn't good. And the next day, I picked up Jack from work with Charlie. We were going to go to the park. And Charlie was just walking through the grass. And it was the first time we'd been able to just take him to the park and see him in the grass since he'd gone through all of it after six weeks of having him back, you know. And he had a seizure. And it was a little focal seizure. And it was just in his mouth. And it was different than the grandma seizures because it was like his lip was twitching and there was foam. But he was looking right at me. And it was almost like he had the presence of mind to be able to look at me with face that was there away from the mouth and look at me and kind of be like what the fuck's going on dad like what is this and we called the doctor and as I called him saying like you know should we bring him in they said well if he has another one and Jack yells he's having another one and I look and it's 30 minutes later so we get him in the car to drive him and then it's 10 minutes later and then we're in the traffic and it's just constant seizing it doesn't stop and it's 40 minutes of him and he's looking at me like everything like his eyes are working and everything in the rest of his face is just its mind of its own we get to the hospital and we give them to him it felt so small it felt like he was in danger but the, they were gonna they were gonna give him some drugs it was a little seizure lots of dogs live with seizures and we were gonna go home and I remember we went home that night because they had to keep him in the hospital and we got drunk we just we just drank, we called some old friends who we missed that we trust to just tell them, people you can cry to your dog about because you can't do that with everyone. And the next morning, the phone rang at around 10. I knew when they always called from the hospital. And I said, hey, how is he? And they said, we haven't been able to stop his seizure. And I said, you mean he's been seizing all night? And they said, yeah. And He's almost in a coma now. We've given him something, I want to say it's called propofol. I don't think they would have spoken to other people this way, but they were so familiar with me at that point. They were like, it's the Michael Jackson drug. It's what they all called it. It's the stuff he was on that, that killed him, right? It's heavy duty stuff. And it wasn't working. And I was with Jack and I said, well, what's the next step? 
And our regular doctor wasn't there, our specialist. She was away, but it was one of the really great doctors that are there that are also specialists. And he said, you know, I'm looking at Charlie's chart and I've seen him. I think the next step is we do an MRI and the MRI is 2,500, but you'll be able to see like if it's grown or if it hasn't grown. And we said, okay, great. And we were just about to hang up the phone and it's weird because Jack should have been the one that does this because I like to pretend. But I said, hey, before we get off the phone, can you walk me through what happens after the MRI? And the doctor said, well, the mass has grown and we've lost the battle. The mass is the same size. And then there's something new and horrible going on for him to be this sick. And I said, and that's it? And he said, yeah. Are you telling me that like, we're kind of like running out of hope? And he said, oh guys, you could put him down today if you want and we're all on your side. You've done a lot and he's a really, really sick dog. You don't know what it's like to get a dog back that's been seizing for 24 hours. You don't know how much of him is gonna be there. It's like he was trying to keep our hope up, but like I opened the door and he said, you know, he's blind as of right now. He went blind last night. We got off the phone and I talked to Jack and I looked at him and he's like, I'm ready. And I was so angry, I kind of wanted to punch him because I knew he was right. There was this part of me that just felt like it was right, you know? And we called the doctor and we said, we're gonna do it. And even as we were doing it, I was like, we're not gonna do this. Something in the day was going to happen, but I was gonna go through the motions of going there to do it. And I went home and I remember I fucking like Julianne Moore screamed around the house. I told Jack, I said, I feel like Cher at the end of Mask, going around the house, wrecking everything with a beer stein. I was just grabbing everything of Charlie's and I was shoving it in the garbage bags. I was putting his beds in the garbage bags and his water bowl and his food because I wanted to go and do it and then just have no evidence of him when I came home, you know? And as I'm doing it, I hear a knock on the door and I'm sure it's gonna be some asshole that sees the for sale sign of our house, our beautiful house that we're losing, like we're losing everything as I feel, asking if she can come in and look at it because people do that for some reason, they think it's appropriate. And I stomp and I notice I move away from where Charlie's bed is. Like I walk around the phantom place and it's this little Mexican woman with these two other Mexican people. And she hands me this flyer and it says, Jesus is coming. And I usually hate this Bible thumping shit, but I'm just so pleased that she's not what I thought she was. And I feel so delicate that I just like, I take the brochure and I start crying and I say, thank you, thank you. We go to the hospital, we wait in a room and they say, we're gonna bring him to you. And they bring him in on this little hydraulic thing that goes down and his eyes are in a stasis, so they're just wobbling back and forth in his head and his tongue. It's like, I didn't know he had so much tongue because it all seems like it's forced out of his mouth and it's dry. It's like he hasn't brought it in for a long time and he has a wound on the side that's like cracked like a chap lip and it's like bleeding. He just looks so bad and um, they put him on the floor and we get to be with him for a while and they have him hooked up to machines. And it, you know, really could have taken half an hour, but it was literally like, it was like the end of Wizard of Oz. Like, it was like Dorothy leaving. It was like every single person at work there, the receptionist, the hilarious like gay black guy with the topaz contact lenses that brought us water and tea. This woman, Danielle, she came in. Danielle was a person that took care of Charlie a lot when he was there the two weeks. And when we would visit, she told us one time, she's like, I hope you don't mind that I dance with him. And I was like, you dance with him? And she's like, well, He's been here longer than any of the other dogs, so he, we kind of feel like he's ours, and he gets really calm when you hold him. 
I said, I know. And she said, so we danced to Etta James together. <laughs> and I said, Etta James? And she said, yeah, we danced to At Last. And she had told us that. And when he came home and was happy, Jack had actually bought that Etta James record. And it was a record that we played a lot. And it was funny because that was like the song that Jack connected to Charlie. But for me, it was Sunday kind of love. We brought him home on a Sunday. And every time I heard that song, I thought of him. And Daniel came to say goodbye. And she came in crying. It was like there was no... No one was keeping up appearances. Like, people were there, like, breaking down, right? And Danielle, like, pets him, and we thank her. And then I look at her and I say, I know this is weird and he's hooked up to so many things, but can we just take him outside? Just into the sun for one last time? And she said, yeah. So she unhooks him from his machines and um, we take him outside. And we all three, even Danielle, dance with him. And she has Etta James on her phone, so we get to dance with him. And then I filmed Jack holding him, and we listened to Sunday Kind of Love. And I guess the propofol, or whatever it was, was leaving his bloodstream pretty quickly. And there was this little moment where, like, he kind of, like, licked his lips. His, like, tongue went in, and his eyes looked at me. And he was, like, super present. And I have it on video, and I, I either want to watch it all the time or I never want to watch it, you know? And uh, he got to be in the sun, and it was nice. And we took him back inside. And he'd only been off the propofol for 10 minutes, maybe. And by the time we got back inside, the twitching and the eyes, it all started to happen. I remember that was the moment where I was like, I can do this. We need to do this, right? And right as we're waiting, the doctor comes in and says, hey, your specialist who you've been dealing with, she's at the airport. She's had a phone. She wanted to talk to you. I take it outside and... She says, well, there's a few things you can do. One is, you cannot do the MRI. Let's see if the drugs work overnight. And all of a sudden, she starts giving me a game plan that is so legitimately hopeful for me. And I hear her say, but of course, he's very sick. And they've been saying this from the start. Whatever choice you made is humane. You guys have done so much. But it's this like little glimmer. And I go back inside, and I tell Jack, I'm like, hey, so here are a few options. And I start going through it all. And I'm done, and there's this sort of stupid smile on my face. And Jack looks at me, and he just gestures down to Charlie, and he says, Stop! We can't do this anymore. And he says, Look at him. And I look at him, and I think of what the doctor said, and I can tell he probably really can barely see, and I, I think of how much we've gone through, and how much at this point we're putting him through, you know, to go through all this. And I tell him, Okay, let's do it. So the doctor comes in and he has these three syringes. And you know, you have this expectation whenever you have a pet, even if they're a puppy, you think about this. But as it's happening, you're like, oh shit, this is happening, you know? Because I always thought he was going to be one of those little old chihuahua type dogs. They get real old. You know, the old ones, they get small, but seemingly their penis sheath gets, they just look like they're old and they're blind and they got a big dong. You know, that was always how I imagined Charlie, just one of those old, grumpy, snaggletooth. And as I'm like holding him, I'm looking at him. It's crazy to me that's happening. And you know, the doctor says, he explains, you know, we do the first one and then there's the second and it should happen very quickly. And he tells us he won't close his eyes, which I always remember striking me. He's like, so weird, I didn't know that. And as he starts to do it, he says, I want you to know, I just called your specialist and told him your decision. And she thinks that's the best thing to do. And I remember sort of taking solace in that and he gave 
Charlie and his little IV, the first shot. I remember halfway through, the way I worded it was so weird, I just blurted out, please tell me this is a valid choice. It was such an unromantic way of saying it. I just blurted that out, and he, and he looked at me. I always remember, I felt like, you know, we barely knew this doctor, and he looked at me, and he had tears in his eyes, and he said, this is a valid choice. He said, I've talked to all those people out there about how hard you guys have fought, and you should be really proud of yourself. And then he gave him the, the second shot. It happened so fast, it's just like they say, it's just like everything stops. And then he took out his stethoscope, and he, felt around, which seems so weird. I guess they need to be sure. <laughs> and he said, he's gone. And then they let us be alone with him for a while. I was not freaked out by his body. I thought that would be a thing, you know? We held him for a long time and uh, kissed him and we pet him. And then we laid him on the couch because that was how you had to leave him. It was this room with horrible, like, forest wallpaper with, like, the sun breaking through, like, the kind of room designed for horrible things. And it was a room that all those visits where I'd gone to see Charlie, I saw people come out of it broken. And I remember thinking, like, I don't want to be one of those people. And as we were leaving, we left his blanket with him, and I set him up on the couch. I remember it was important to set him up just the way that he liked being on the couch at home. And I sat next to him the way he liked to lay when I wrote, because that was what he did with me. He laid with me whenever I wrote. Every morning I had my coffee, and he just laid with me. And I just felt that one more time. We wrapped him up, and we opened the door, and we like looked in one last time, and we just said, we love you. And we left. And uh, they get you out of there very quickly. You thumbprint the iPad again and you leave, and you want to leave, and we got in the car, and Jack said, we're going to go to the beach. And on the drive to the beach, which was so close, I think the first thing that hit me was just the weight of all of that, like, sorrow and trauma just being gone. Like, I wasn't happy, but I felt clear, you know? It felt like really zen in a way. I felt blank, and we got to the beach. It was, like, right at sunset, and I remember walking alone, and in the sidewalk, there was this little rock, and it was this small, smooth, oval rock and had like a little divot in the middle. And I just remember very clearly picking it up and there's no rocks like this for anywhere around me. It's just sand. And I remember thinking, okay, you're Charlie. And I walked towards the beach and I held the rock in my hand and just was feeling it and I thought, I'm going to get to the beach and I'm going to throw this rock into it and I'm going to let go of all of the stuff that has been piling up inside of me. And when I got to the beach I just yelled, I want so much stuff back. I want my home back. I thought of leaving New York. I thought of wanting my dad back. I thought of wanting my fucking house back. I looked at my phone and there were calls from like debt collectors and I had called about bankruptcy because of the bills and I was like, I want my fucking money back. And I just yelled, I want my fucking dog back. And I was going to throw the rock and I just, I couldn't because I just need to hold on to this for a little bit longer. I put it in my pocket. And immediately that clear feeling came back and I took a breath and I got in the car with Jack and I drove him home. And I'll always remember that drive home. We didn't speak at all. We just were listening to a piano mix on the radio. And we got to our house and we pulled up. And the moment we pulled up and looked at our house, the worst feelings came back. And I thought like, I've never come home with you to no one. 
and we went inside our house and we were in there just a couple seconds and I was just about to break down when Jack said, someone's been here. And that fire of just thinking of the realtors and who had been in there and what had they done, what had they like, I just started to go into this rage and right before it could happen, Jack said, hey, look, and we looked on the dining room table and there were these flowers, there was this huge bouquet of, of white flowers and he went into our kitchen and it was full of groceries, like everything, the freezer and the fridge in the pantry and uh, there was a note from his sister and his family and they had had Claire go and just take care of us, you know. We cried in the kitchen together and we held each other and we went to bed. That night I woke up at about three in the morning and I placed my hand on Charlie next to me and I realized it was a blanket. And then in that totally cliche way you hear about, I realized, you know, it's like waking up into a bad dream. And I went outside I just got on my knees in the backyard and I just like wept and I wept and I wept. And at one point I realized that I was holding the rock. I don't know how it got in my hand. I wasn't sleeping with it, but I like had it. And it occurred to me in this rush, <laughs> this crazy rush that was so hysterical that I have literally a pet rock. And I started cackling in the dirt. Like I just started at three in the, like I don't know what my neighbors were thinking because I was loud. I was like, fuck you. I, mean, I was probably screaming at everything, at my dad and Donald Trump, I don't know what, and my dog. And then I'm like holding this rock and I'm laughing my ass off about this, about how absurd this is that I have this rock. And I take a breath and for just this moment, I remember a spot a few days earlier that where Charlie was laying in the grass in the spot where I am now. And I think back about how we were going to get that 17 to 25 months and we got six weeks. But that he was happy. And it makes me breathe and I calm down. And the next few days, I'm just on this roller coaster of emotion, right? Because when he was in the hospital, it's a different kind of tension. It's like, are we going to get him back? And there's always something to hold on to. And when he's gone, he's gone. And I didn't know it would feel like that. I want to rev up that engine of anticipation or stress and it's not there he's just gone a few days later I'm with my nephew Leo and he was different in the days after Charlie died I would catch him looking at me in this like curious way even when Jack was there Jack and I wouldn't talk to him you could feel us not wanting to activate each other like let's not bring it up how do we get past it and one day we're having tacos and Jack and his sister are talking, and me and Leo are on the other side of the picnic bench, and Leo just looks at me. He says, are you still sad that Charlie's gone now? And I say, yeah, I am. And he says, what was in his brain? And I start to explain to Leo what cancer is and what a tumor is. And he's like, oh, well, where is it? And he has me point on his brain where it is. And he says, can't they put it inside a machine? And I say, well, we tried that, buddy. And he said, oh, I miss him too. And I say, yeah, I know, me too. And I'm so in love with him at this point. <laughs> I know it's the middle of the day and I'm like broke and I have a lot of messages from people that want money from me, but I'm like, I'm taking you for ice cream and we're doing it right now. I don't ask his mother, I don't care. And we go down the street to this ice cream place and we get him the bluest, most mouth-staining ice cream because that's what he would want. And they give it to him in a cone, but he has to get a cup because he's five and he needs both. And we're walking down the street and we're at a crosswalk. And he's so happy. I'm so happy he's there and the sun is shining and. I'm so grateful that he's moved and he's a part of my life and I feel like I'm like with my little family. 
and the light turns green for us to walk and he doesn't have a hand and he knows he has to hold a hand and he looks at me and it's just like oh, I have my cup here and my cone what do I I'm like buddy I'm gonna grab your collar is that okay and as we're crossing the street he's like yeah it's like I'm on a leash and I say yeah and then he looks at me and he says I can be Charlie now I really have to like withhold my emotion, right? Because you don't want to freak a five-year-old out by stopping in the middle of a crosswalk and picking him up and saying, you're a gift and I love you, <laughs> you know, because that's what I want to do. And I hug him goodbye because I'm leaving on this trip and I tell him I love him and I promise him that when I get back to LA, we're going to make a cake together. I don't know what it means, but he's obsessed with making a cake. I don't know. I say yes, whatever you want, I'll do it. I felt really clear having that experience with him. There was something that felt so like pure about it, being able to like look at this child who just so innocently asked me if I hurt and getting to tell him, yeah, man, I really do. Even though he can't process it, you know? And we get home, I look on the porch and there's this little box and I see this little biohazard symbol on it. And then I see in this little green sticker on the side, and I totally forgot this was happening. It said, be gentle, pet remains. And I opened it and it had a little wooden chest with his name on it, and a little gold thing on the top, and then we opened it, and it's his ashes in a little plastic bag. And I'd never seen ashes, but zero part of me felt like that was him. And there was this little ceramic disc, and it was his paw print. And it was so funny because we put off getting his nails clipped, he hated it. And we told him when he was healthy again, like, let's just let him be dragon lady for a while. You know, like, let's let him just tap around the house, you know? And in that paw print, the nail marks are so deep. It's like a paw print with some like, just deep spike skewers where his nails are. And we cried and we chuckled about it. And then we just laid on the floor, like in the big shaft of sunlight where he loved to lay. And then the postman came. And we were kind of embarrassed for a minute because he's always so sweet. And it's one of these California houses with a stoop and we just leave the door open. And the postman looked at us and said, oh, no dog today. Because Charlie always attacked him. And I just said to the postman, I said, no, no dog. And we said goodbye. And then we just laid on the floor for a while. That was about a month ago. And I immediately left. I went on this whirlwind trip for work. I'm like really running from my grief. I went to Texas and then I went to Dublin and New York. I haven't been to that house. I'm a little bit worried about it. I've taken this rock with me everywhere. I put it out in places and like hotel rooms where he would be. Because he was a well-traveled dog. He went to Mexico and Canada and cross country. He loves hotels. And I feel fucking crazy doing it. Like I walk into rooms and I'm like, hey buddy. And then if I realize that I didn't say it with the right intonation, I actually say it again. I'm like, hey buddy. And I'm fucking talking to a rock, you know. But it's what I need to do right now, just have this rock. So much of this kind of loss is not what I expected, you know? I keep telling people when I get sad about Charlie, I know he's a dog, that thing I do to myself. And sometimes people let me do it. And the other night I was with this writer, Adam Gopnik, and I started talking about that. I was like, he's just a dog. And he put his hand on me and he said, stop it. That dog is a member of your family. And we just lost a bird. And that bird was a member of our family. And never ever do that. That dog matters and you should be sad. And he really put his finger on this thing that's so lonely about this that I talked to other people who have lost animals. You know, if your friend Becky dies, 
That's terrible. And Becky has an intellectual capacity to do things in the world that an animal never could, right? But you get to go to a, a funeral and you get to talk to people about how, oh, didn't, isn't it funny how Becky did jazzercise for a while? Isn't it funny how politically active Becky was? Didn't you respect that? And wasn't it funny how she was afraid of heights? Yes, she went bungee. You did to do all that. And when it's your dog, it's just so lonely because people kind of loved your dog. They can say, oh, your dog was so great at parties. Your dog was so nice to my kid. But that dog that you wake up with and you feed and you organize their pills and the spoonfuls of peanut butter and you bend over on the street and in front of a bus full of people looking at you, you pick something out of their butt when they're pooping because it's stuck, you know? Like that's, that's just you and them, you know? And there's kind of nowhere to go with it. It's just in your house and it's in your heart and um, it's been so hard to share and it's made me realize that I can't like hold my grief for my loss to other people's. Everyone's been through shit, you know? People talk about if you could bring your problems and your troubles and your grief into a pile and pile them up and see everyone else's, you would gladly take yours back. Don't compare what you've been through to other people. What sucks for a person just sucks for a person. Maybe you saw your friend die. Maybe you have a traumatic disease you're dealing with. Maybe your dog died. Maybe you have a hangnail. I mean, whatever it is, you're just fucking going through it, you know? The thing about my dog that I miss so much, it's not that I miss what he did for me, it's that there's a part of me that developed into a person that did stuff for him and I don't know where to put that now. <laughs> you know, they're just day-to-day -day things. They're like feeding and cleaning and I, I don't know where that goes. And I think it's because you form that kind of bond. The thing that's great about dogs is that they're just easy to be with. They can feel like a shadow. They make this huge impression on you, a pet, a dog, a cat, a bird, on such a short amount of time. They have so little here and you feel so connected to them. And thinking of places you've been with dogs and the way they've infused themselves into your life, you know, it was hard right when I left to go on my like world tour of grief escape because everything was like the place he used to lay and the place where he was really sick that time and the place he had the seizure. And, I was walking right before I left and I even passed the parking spot where I remember Jack and I were in the car when we decided. I was like, oh, that's where we decided to let him go. And a few days later when I had to go pick up his collar, when they weren't looking at the doctor, I snuck back into the room with the horrible forest wallpaper. <laughs> kind of like in a weird way. I was like, what if he's in there? It's, it's, cra it's crazy and you know it's crazy as you do it. But like I looked at the couch and I was like, oh, that's the couch where he died. And I want to get past this part so that I can start looking at like Oh, that's the place where he loved napping. And like, that's the cafe he loved walking by because they make dog treats. And that's the place when I go home to my family's, like that's where he would sit in the middle of the wrapping paper, you know? And I want to get back to those memories. I think it's just like, I don't know, it's like when you build like a campfire, if you ever like did a bonfire and you realize there's too much shit on the bonfire, you can't take anything off. There is no pausing it or fast-forwarding through it. You just have to fucking let it burn and step as far away back as you can, and then hopefully it'll be okay. Like, I keep wanting to take stuff off, and there's just no room for that. I just have to get to the part where everything's easy to look at again, because I'm not remembering right now as much of that happy dog as I want. A lot of people, especially if they have animals, or a lot of the vets and doctors, they actually say there's no wrong choice. We could have just let him go and had him for two less months at the start and not put him through so much and us through so much. So I think that's what they mean when they say there's no wrong choice. You just can't feel bad about it, but it's hard. It's really hard to not want to like rewind it and do it differently. 
because at a certain point you realize the only right answer for the way you feel is getting your dog back. One thing people keep forwarding to me is the fucking rainbow bridge. You know, the rainbow bridge. You've never heard of the rainbow bridge? The place where all your animals are waiting to meet you when you die? <laughs> okay, it's a thing. There are memes. There's a lot of lovely, well-intentioned Christian women that send me things about the rainbow bridge. And man, I want it to be true. <laughs> but like, I don't even know if people have souls. Do you know what I'm saying? I don't think necessarily maybe that God is real. And I'm still that kid in church when I was little. I'm like, you can cry and hold the snake and speak in tongues, and that's awesome for you. But I don't know how you intellectualize that. But what's weird for me is that if I had to get to a place where I couldn't intellectually justify what I knew was true in my heart, it would probably be the room where we said goodbye to him in that moment because I was trying to just a dog, it's just a dog myself out of that feeling because he's just a dog. He's like this 12 pound thing that like shits places and can't talk and has never got a job, never supported the household, you know? But I have this feeling for him that transcends whatever it is, you know? And I don't know if I believe in God, but like I felt something in the room that day and I felt something in our kitchen that day that Jack and I came home and there was all the food and his family had, they were like there with us. And I can't make sense of those feelings, but I'm happy about it. And I'm trying to step back from all of that like intellectualizing. I'm open to people sending me little things about dog as God spelled backwards. It makes me roll my eyes as far up into my head as I can. I remember seeing it before this happened thinking, get a life. But I carry a fucking rock now. Do you know what I mean? Like I take a rock that I talk to like my dog to hotel rooms and I make sure it's comfortable in the corner of a bed. I'm fucking insane. Every pet owner I've talked to talks about that feeling that sometimes you just have to stop. I mean, I think that day where Jack gestured to the ground, look at him when I came back in and I looked at him and he was, I mean, he was half shaven and, and his tongue was bleeding. He wasn't there, he was probably blind. And I'd like to think that without him, I could have kept going. But what I, what I really do is I fear without him that I would have kept going. Like that if Jack wasn't there, and when I think about putting Charlie through more of that, I feel so bad that I would have maybe done that because I'll always want him back. I can't start to take stuff out of his. It's still in the bags. I cannot look too long at pictures of him. And there's music that I can't hear. I can't listen to Etta James. It'll come up on a shuffle and it's like, abort! You know, I have to get to the iPod real fast. But right before I left in our big living room where he used to lay in the sun on this oriental carpet, I listened to Grace Jones. I was playing it, this was right before I left, and it was that song, Bullshit. And in the song, she means it as like, a, you know, it's like a lover, someone that's pissed her off. It's very Grace Jones, you know. He says, bullshit, you know, and her crazy. But when I listened to it that day, it made me think of like all the things I'd been letting like build up in me in the last year, sort of ending with losing Charlie. And it made me feel like so empowered, and it made me think about dancing to that song with him. And for just a split second, it was like, I wasn't seeing him like with all the patches on his skin or like with the syringes going in or having a seizure. It was just Grace Jones singing that bullshit song and just dancing with him and being happy, you know? And that makes me feel like that's like a, a trailer for what's coming. Like, it'll be better soon. 
I'm gonna not beat myself up, and I keep reminding myself that he was really special. Everyone's lost little dog, even though you can't intellectualize it. They're all really special. They're cats, and they're birds, and they're fish. I will never replace Charlie, but I love him, and um, he really did make me feel like the boy from the story. Risk. This is George Michael behind me now. And we just heard from David Crabb, who you can find at davidcrabb.net. I'll tell you, that story meant so much to me, not just at the time it was told, but also so much a year later when my beloved cat, Donkey, died. And that story was edited by our audio director, John LaSala. And John is married to Kate LaSala, who is a certified dog trainer, accredited dog behavior consultant, and a certified end-of-life doula for folks with companion animals. I'll tell you, Kate brings so much wisdom and knowledge and tender loving care into her work it's really inspiring to see and it made us think it would be lovely to have kate and david record a conversation together about david's story for the love of charlie these five years later so now here are kate and david So a few days ago, uh, our dog Frankie, who we've had for about five years now, beautiful, big, fluffy tail, long, fluffy black ears, 
if you get him in a strong wind, he does a real like kind of Beyonce moment. There's just a lot of extra hair there. <laughs> when we take him to get groomed, they're like, you want us to trim this? And we're like, no, my husband and I just, it, it's just the response is just like, how, how why? What's wrong with you? Um, he's gorgeous. And whenever we take him to get groomed, they're like, oh, they call to the back. Oh, we got like a, maybe a four month old shepherd mix puppy. And we're like, no, he's just youthful, honey. He's five years old. Um, and he's, he's the best. And we live in a house where in the backyard, we have a really tall palm tree. We live in Los Angeles and, you know, these palm trees, some of them, they have these crazy seed pods. If you look up at the top of a palm tree sometime, you can just see like a horde of little fruits, like little tiny, almost like peaches and they're green. And then they fall to the ground in the seasonal way. And about six months ago, we woke up one morning and Frankie wasn't in the bedroom. He sleeps on the bed because we're not good people who really train dogs to do the correct thing. And I came to the hallway and he had vomited. So I cleaned it up and I got it back inside and then we fell asleep. And then I got up naturally in an hour when I went into the rest of the house, everything was covered in vomit. Like oh. I had cleaned up that vomit thinking it was a one-off and he had probably vomited on every piece of just fabric. He located <sighs> the fabric, Never, no, not in the hard tile anywhere, wood floor. Um, and um, we had to take him to the ER and it turned out that he had in the backyard ingested more than likely several of these little fruits and it was terrifying. He was there overnight. They were giving him fluids. They were running a series of scans to see if he had a, an intestinal blockage. And luckily, in the end, he was fine. And we got to bring him home. Uh, his tummy was messed up, and we couldn't go back to his kibble. So he upgraded to literal food that is literally four times as expensive. It is freeze-dried, pure, unadulterated, lean meat. And it was terrible. But again, a few days ago... I guess he got outside without us watching him in the backyard. He was vomiting. He wasn't hungry. And we took him back. And, you know, the first time this had happened, his temperament wasn't his own. He was looking at us like a dog that needed help. And I hadn't mm -hmm. experienced something like that in a while. And this time, he was more of himself. He was a little vomitous, but I could tell it wasn't as intense. But we took him in nonetheless. And... They told us pretty quickly, hey, we can tell, we think it's probably something he's passed. We're just going to keep him for a couple hours, give him some fluids. We already did a little uh, scan. There's nothing in there. Like even, even then with that information being so much better than the last time, it was just so triggering because it took me down basically like this wormhole, this kind of emotional portal to our last dog, whose name was Charlie, uh, who I told the story about on Risk who was very sick for a prolonged period of time, six months, um, with a brain tumor. And it was so fascinating to me that you would think, having had that experience before, that I would have kind of a litmus test or a bar would be set that would make something like what happened a few days ago so comparatively easy. You know, like, oh, God, if this isn't that. And it kind of wasn't. It, it, it's like a trap door that opens to like the exact same thing when it happens. It's like the stakes are no lower, even though they're totally lower. <laughs> like they, yeah. they really are totally lower. So it was kind of a fascinating thing to, to realize that's there, like a thing that you touched that mm -hmm. you can say you pulled your finger off of like a, like a hot flame, but like Mm -hmm. It's just always there. It's it's yeah. it's strange. It, it makes me my dog can never eat one of those things. And we hired a group of men with a giant ladder for four hundred dollars who are coming to our home Thursday to basically castrate. They're cutting the nuts off our trees. Is basically <laughs> what they're doing. No more of those things falling. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, grief messes with your brain, and some of those impacts are, are permanent. And 
you know, even when I think about our, our previous vet where our first dog was euthanized, we brought, he had had a seizure the night before and we, the emergency hospital that we went to at the time, it was this weird open from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. And at 7 a.m., everyone gets discharged, whether you're stable or not. It's like, we don't care where you go, but you can't stay here. And so we put him in the car, this 130-pound dog who had been seizing for hours. And we brought him to our vet who we knew was out on maternity leave. And we had left a message the night before telling her what was going on. The vet tech called us like, you know, she's not in she's she's out on maternity leave I'm like I know we're sitting in your parking lot we just didn't know where else to go ultimately she ended up coming in baby in tow to euthanize him but that room that we did that euthanizing in the purple room in her office even when we brought our current dogs there it was always oh this is the room that we euthanized bandit you know this the purple room was the room that we said goodbye to him and even if we were just going for wellness visits so you know those attachments, those memories, I don't think ever go away. You know, you can push them aside, but they're always going to be present. I think, you know, those memories are just so deeply ingrained. Well, there's also that feeling like, it's funny, I've talked about this concept on other risk stories about being a returner. It's kind of a joke that my, my mom and I joke that we're, you know, sometimes when I go home, we just drive because she was a single mom and my dad got married and divorced a lot. And my mom was constantly getting a promotion at the mall or needing a job or my dad would get divorced. I'd move into her efficiency. And she's like, I'm trying to get us a one bedroom. And we moved a lot. And a big thing that we love doing is we like drive. We go on home tours, (laughs) which is like literally like (laughs) 16 different apartments, duplexes and houses. And, you know, I feel, and I think maybe it's moving around a lot. I feel super strong connections to places. Like I feel like I can really get myself there. And when I think about the room because I think I've talked about this with other people who've lost pets, they t- that they a lot of them have that really strong sense memory, that mm-hmm. visual memory of like the room. I still have this weird feeling like that I I left Charlie somewhere. That, mm-hmm. In that sense that like, God, I mean, I, I I think in the depths of sadness after this, I I I said to Jack because I really did think we, I think I thought for a while we made a mistake. I, it's so funny. I, I had the same situation as you. Kate with um, our doctor wasn't our doctor was on a plane like literally on a layover mm-hmm. when the vet there said I think it's time to do what you have to do I think it, mm-hmm. it's you know we have to do this you know for Charlie but it's also up to you and I hated that she wasn't there and that mm-hmm. someone else did it after seeing him through mm-hmm. so much of a of a journey but when we got home, it was that little, you know, you, you look for every possibility where you made an error or, or a mistake. And when we got home, I, I would kept saying to Jack when I was sort of in this weird phase of feeling like it was a mistake, I would just keep saying, I can't believe we left him there. It was more of mm. a feeling that like, how do we just give him away to some, some Joe? Yeah. It's that kind of, you know, God, I mean, I don't know if you had this with dog. And I think a lot of people do. There's so much magical thinking wrapped up in it. I mean, I think we do that with death anyway, but Mm -hmm. I don't know. I feel like with animals, maybe it's because they can't speak or really communicate with us in as succinct a way as another person. You just kind of have to invent a lot of stuff. I feel like I invented a lot of stuff around Charlie's death, you know? Yeah. 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 So I'm curious, this most recent visit with Frankie, did Jack have, your husband, did Jack have those same sorts of thoughts 
because one of the things when I was listening to your risk story was the moment that you found Jack outside and he was sobbing saying, it just occurred to me that he might not make it. And you seem to be on the opposite side of the spectrum of like, how on earth is he ever going to get through this? And, and it seemed like there was this sort of divide between how you were both thinking about the scenario. So I'm wondering if, did Jack also feel like he was being re-triggered at the ER? Was he more like, oh, this is nothing? Well, it's funny. It's so funny you say that. You know, a part of Frankie's situation was that we realized from this first more dire visit that scared us that he he really just couldn't be unattended to outside, which sucks because we've always mm-hmm. had Frankie in homes that he could just, I mean, what's the point of having an outdoor space? You know, I'm so glad we're finally getting the, this tree, you know, taken care of now and he can have that back. And I feel dumb that we didn't do it right after. But a few weeks before this more recent thing with Frankie had happened, I accidentally, he came out with me and I was on a work call. And then Jack opened the door and was like, where's Frankie? And I was like, oh no. And he'd been outside and we have a pretty sprawling backyard for 30 minutes. And I thought, as I had to finish this work meeting, like, I'll never forgive myself if X, Y, and Z. This last time, Jack let him out. Was talking to a friend in the house and I came in and I was like, where is he? And I was infuriated. And the Uh luck of the draw is... Maybe the tree hadn't. The gardeners had just come. Mm-hmm. It was Jack's mistake a few weeks after mine that mm-hmm. led to the problem. So mm-hmm. I think because of that, he had his own, you know, when Charlie was sick, I was kind of the workhorse. And I don't mean that, that and that's through no judgment. I worked freelance. I could give up a lot of time and to my own detriment, really. I It was such a long period of time that I said no to not being available. Yeah. And Jack worked at a restaurant and, you know, we sort of just, you know, I kind of became the one who got all the phone calls, who could go there Mm -hmm. the last minute. And I think in a way, talking to Jack now, that was hard for him. Like, I just kind of thought, and I, and I love, I love, I I will take on the burden of whatever it is. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. a little bit of a martyr complex because I think I'm just, I'll do it. I'll do it. And then like, I end up on the other side, usually like withered away and resentful that I said, mm-hmm. let me do it all. Because um, I want it done right and I'll do it. Let me spare you and I'm a goddamn hero. And it was interesting because, you know, the other day with Frankie, it was a little bit flipped. And I think it's flipped now whenever anything, even the first time with Frankie, because Jack knows that that was the way it was the first time. Mm-hmm. And, and I think he knows, like, how much it, how much it affects me. Like, he gets the trap door. The mm-hmm. fact that, like, anything that happens with Frankie now, however small, is going to, like, open this portal of, like... Because I think when you're that person who's, like, taking the phone calls and getting the info, you're kind of living through it twice. You're kind of doubling the amount of times. Because mm-hmm. then you're the person that has to hear, he's got a 20% chance of survival. The drugs aren't mm-hmm. working anymore. Let's give it till 3 p.m. And then you have to then, to the person you love the most, who is the other person to be affected most, we say, hey... So he might not make it till three and they're going to, and then you're just like reliving. And I kind of feel like these last two times with Frankie, Jack has been really aware of that. We've never talked about it, but I see it happen. I see him Mm -hmm. being like, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I'm going to call. I'm here if you need me. Oh, but I have a work meeting. You take your time. I'm going to send you plenty of texts. And this time I think that was compounded by, I think it would have been flipped if he had eaten all the (laughs) stupid fruits on my watch. (laughs) But this time it was, it, it was, I think it was Jack being like, oh, 
Yeah. Let me so take do you care of it. Think with, so he was in work mode, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, it wasn't that he yeah. wasn't emo- He was emotionally connected, and I could tell, especially when I met him, because I did have a work call, and then I rushed there when we were waiting in the room. It was a, you know, I mean, you've been in and out of, like, emergency vets and vets. Mm-hmm. Like, there are lovely days in that kind of office, and there are the worst yeah. days where you just want to, you almost feel like if your animal is in there for something minor, you need to get him out fast because he's going to get touched by the gloom and morose end of life like let's get him out Mm -hmm. just give it give him back to me and it was one of those days so by the time i got there it just kind of felt like i could tell jack had already taken care of so much and i could also sense i was like okay yeah you you, we both like we held hands at one point we're like without saying it right because there's the woman crying about her cat and there's the guy Mm -hmm. being like i don't understand how it's this much money i don't know if we can do you know and i was just like let's just get him so Jack was aware that Frankie's predicament was far less severe this time, mm-hmm. but I think he also was just kind of, you know, towing the line. <laughs> yeah. In a more intense way. Do you way. think that because you took that sort of lion's share with Charlie, that gave Jack a different perspective, sort of looking in to be able to make sort of more clear-minded or less emotional comments or judgment? Because I remember at one point when. Jack said, you know, I think, I think I'm ready to let Charlie go. And you said, like, I just wanted to punch him. Like, and that if Jack hadn't been there, that you fear that you would have kept going with Charlie, that, that maybe you wouldn't have followed through when the, when the vet said, I think it's time. Do you think that that distance that Jack had in a sense, because he wasn't getting those phone calls and he wasn't doing that, gave him that ability to sort of have a different reflection on the severity of the situation? Yeah, and I think it was healthy, but I kind of think the different reflection or the reflection that was maybe a little less realistic was actually mine, which is a weird thing to say that like, you know, if I'm taking 80% of the phone calls, sharing 80% of the documents, you know, there were a few weeks before he got out from radiation that I just literally drove to the vet and they set us up in a room for like 10 hours and I just played the same freaking shoegaze music and like ordered lunch and watched him like try to eat slop out of you know Mm -hmm. like I should be the more realistic pragmatic person because I quote unquote know what's going on but I actually feel like looking back I I was more touched by the emotionality of it versus the actual phone call content Mm -hmm. you know the it's not in any doctor's best interest to lose a patient when there's still a possibility, right? Yeah. So when they tell you, I mean, they told us a few weeks before we finally let go, like, you don't have to do this. It would be totally mm-hmm. humane for you. And we're like, no, let's do it. And I do yeah. think at the end, I would have kept going. I think I would have not done it that last time. Mm-hmm. And I think that maybe his ability to, you know, A, still live a life like the way that I should have been trying to at least in some way more evenly focus my energies, right? Like I loved Charlie. I still love Charlie. He's like so important, but like I lost some things in that time. Mm-hmm. Like there's a couple professional bridges I burnt. There's a, mm. a relationship or two that I didn't value as much as I should have. Yeah. And I think that Jack's having to work four or five nights a week or even more because we needed the money. We were sinking a debt over this. I think yeah. it allowed him to, you know, keep his eye on like, sure, our dog's important and I love him and I'm going to be heartbroken. But I have my husband. We have a life together mm-hmm. and we have to like push through this. And yeah. uh, I think I was so touched by 
all those sad nights listening to the sad music, holding my little dog that was shaved everywhere, just mm. just almost wanting to set off fireworks because he took one bite of like a chicken off my finger. Yeah. You know, like it, yeah. everything's going to be okay. He's in a cone with a bell. He's got electrodes <laughs> on him, you know. I mean, I I I I would go so far as to say in retrospect, I wish we wouldn't have you know, and I tell anyone when they're going through this, there's no wrong choice, right? Mm-hmm. You choose to to do something insane for your dog based on medical advice, as long as that vet is telling you it's not going to hurt them or put them through undue mm-hmm. suffering, you choose to do it. And if they make it, great. And if they don't, you tried. If you choose to not do it, the dog doesn't know what they're going through. They're not your human child mm-hmm. who heard the doctor say, we can keep Becky alive with this treatment. No. Yeah. You know, like... And you can try it and you can, it can fail. I mean, it failed for us in the end, you know? Mm-hmm. So I don't beat myself up about it, but I beat myself up about it sometimes. I, yeah. I, I catch myself thinking we shouldn't have gone that far for so many yeah. reasons. Yeah. Had you had conversations between the two of you? Because I think what one of the things that gets overlooked when we're dealing with a sick animal or knowing that their time is short with us is sort of the dynamics between the family or the couple that that both love this animal. And, you know, I try to encourage people to have conversations long before the animal is sick about, you know, what you're willing to do, what you're not willing to do. You know, like my husband and I have talked about if we had a dog with cancer and they were an old dog, like we probably wouldn't put them through chemo or radiation, you know, that our focus is on, you know, that quality, not quantity. If it's a younger dog, then that's a different conversation. If the dog's three and they have mast cell tumors and and you can do surgery and remove them and there's a likelihood that that will cure them for another 10 years. Great. But just curious if you had had conversations between you sort of leading up to this or even during it and and sort of what those conversations looked like or was it just really living in the moment and making those decisions moment by moment no we have had those talks because of charlie and 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 we had more of those talks when frankie got really sick like six months ago with this first Mm -hmm. tree thing you know we knew it was that so you know the, the the conversation wasn't you know, we knew the worst case scenario was pro- would have probably been surgery. You know, it would have been the removal of these objects causing the blockage. And mm-hmm. being that we knew what they were and that they weren't toxic, we knew that even that worst case scenario, costly as it might be for a dog that healthy and that young, mm-hmm. we would kick ourselves over pulling out the freaking credit card, but we would kick ourselves if we didn't try knowing that right. he was that healthy and it was a yeah. fixable thing. But, you know, it did, it did make us, it, we did have a talk after that more about like when Frankie gets older, like how far will we, will we go again? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it's tricky. You know, I have a friend right now with a dog that's really ill and an older dog. And, you know, it's a tumor situation that's so visible on their mm-hmm. face and body. Mm-hmm. And she has really reliable vets who say a lot of this is just, you know, that cosmetic thing that happens to old yeah. dogs. It actually looks like a nightmare, but they're, they're really fine. They're just going to carry that grapefruit around <laughs> on their hip for, you know, until they die or whatever. <laughs> but some of the tumors are more serious. And like, I watch her go through this and through making these calls. And I've had this with a few people with dogs that are really sick where I catch myself having, being that person on the outside. And I catch that little glimmer of, 
why are you doing this to yourself? You know, and, and I'm, I'm a person that follows all the rescues and all the dogs. Mm-hmm. We have literally saved and rehomed two stray dogs in our neighborhood in the last like six months. Yeah. Like it's my jam. I, I love it. <laughs> and still I catch myself thinking, why are you doing this? There's all these dogs of eight, you know, there's other dogs, there's other lives to save. There's other canine mm-hmm. relationships that you get to build. Like, why are you doing <laughs> this? And then I catch myself and I'm like, David, look at what you did. I mean, and to be fair, our dog was a young, healthy dog before yeah. this, but yeah. it was a deep cranial, I mean, it was a brain tumor. Like, I mean, yeah. it, it, it wasn't run of the mill. Like we made a big choice. So I kind of mm-hmm. feel like, you know, for me, it all harkens back to like what is inherently, and I'm sure you deal with this so much, Kate, like the very weird thing about mourning the loss of a dog or choosing to let go of a dog is that it's like, it is so personal, like You see people at the dog park with their dogs and you're like, oh, that dog loves her. That dog loves him. That dog's also brown and also, you know, they they can just look, (laughs) most dog-human relationships, they just look so basic from the Mm -hmm. outside. But they're just so personal because they're not like, again, not to humanize it, but like, you know, it's not like your friend Stephanie who passes away and like so many people knew her and we all had this intricate relationship around Mm -hmm. Stephanie and the ways that she like, helped our lives and made us laugh like this is our dog and that dog more than likely unless it lives in a community center is in on some kind of timeshare the dog has might be loved by a lot of people but it's got its person it's two mm-hmm. people it's family yeah. and it's just such a private choice so i mean i want to think i'd be strong enough if frankie was 12 13 you know he's not a small dog so he's got a shorter life expectancy than Charlie had, but mm-hmm. I'd like to hope that I make the right decision. And when Jack and I talked with Frankie the last time, we were like, we knew it was probably the tree nuts, but we thought if it's like an intestinal cancer or something like that, we're going to have to make choices. And we both said to each other, I'm not doing Charlie again. Like, I, I mm-hmm. won't do that again. And he nodded yeah. and we kind of agreed. Now, what that means in theory and what that means in practice are two different things. Yeah. Yep. But yeah, but it's good that you had that conversation and and opened that as a topic to, you know, keep in mind as you're navigating Frankie getting older, you know, and I think to your point about, you know, your friend, Stephanie, (laughs) you know, dog or pet loss is not honored with the same degree of gravity as human loss. You know, there's no standardized rituals. There's no funeral. Usually there's no memorial service. And that as the person or people who are mourning that loss can feel really lonely. And I, I loved your friend that you mentioned, I forget, was it Adam that, you know, said, so the, you said so much of this loss is not what I expected. And he just validated that and gave you permission to grieve and gave you permission to be sad. And I think having that community of support, you know, people that you can call and cry to about your dog, because that's not everybody as you know, you said that. And having that community of support is so important, moving through grief and and navigating that. And, you know, society expects us to just return to work the next day or return, you know, because it's not your mother, it's not a sibling, it's not a human. So, you know, get over it, you know, be sad for a day or two, but then go back yeah. to your normal work. And people love to, you know, oh, when are you gonna, are you gonna get another dog? You know, they, they think they're yeah. being helpful, and they're completely yeah. not being helpful. And yeah. so 
it sounded like you had a little bit of that community, but I'm wondering, did you feel if you were supported during that time or did you feel like it was really just like you and Jack kind of going through this on your own? I wasn't supported and I, I, I chose that. Like I wish I okay. would have done that differently. I wish I would have, I didn't let Charlie's sick. I mean, you know, I mean the real bad part, the part where like I literally had no life, and was just kind of in a place, it was two months before he came out of the, I mean, you know, he was back and forth, but he was, you know, for weeks at a time sometimes. Mm -hmm. It was two months of pretty isolated, you know, being, you know, and most of that was Jack working at night and more mm -hmm. because we had, I don't even think we talked about it. It was just almost unspoken that like we needed income. He had the possibility to have, to work at one place in town as much as he wanted, so he was gonna do that, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's so weird, like, it, in a way, it's not a depression that I can kind of say I ever came back, I, I, I'm not back from it now, and I don't mean that I'm still depressed, but I mean, it's so funny, I talk about trapdoors so much when I talk about <laughs> this, and I never use that as a metaphor until Charlie. And I've been very lucky, you know, I, I lost a close friend in high school, I've lost some family members I wasn't necessarily really, really tight with. I'm very lucky in loss in life so far, he said on a podcast and wished he would have never said that. Um, but, <laughs> you know, Charlie, like, hit me. Like, Char like, Charlie, and I'm not trying to say if I hadn't experienced three times as much human loss that Charlie wouldn't have impacted me that much. I'm just saying that it felt a little blindsidey. And I, I think it was a sadness that for all the ways I claim to be like a diehard goth kid in high school, <laughs> I did not know that I could feel, like things could feel that bleak. And I chose mm -hmm. to just push everyone out. And I wanna say push everyone out, you know, I think that thing happens when anyone, when a human is sick with cancer and they've got a few people around them, people do that thing and they mean to be kind, but like, well, we're gonna see him today and. I, I, let's let him talk about his uncle if he wants to. Because, you know, it can be hard to talk about that. So maybe we'll just talk about other stuff. And if he gives us the cue that we can, like, talk about Uncle Harry and how the treatment is going. I know he's been at the hospital two days. Let, you know, there's that idea, let them follow the lead. I mean, I've done it. I'm, I mean, I think we've all done it. And I think that I'm a... I'm a funny person, he said. I, I'm a funny person. I work in comedy and humor is my, my go-to. And I think people took that approach with me and I do not resent them for it. People mm -hmm. are like, how's Charlie doing? So, yep, yep, yep. And then if they did ask, yep, yep, yep. It just wasn't something that I went in on with anyone. And I just stayed at home. You know, we lived in this mm -hmm. house out in Eagle Rock with a patio I had a stocked liquor cabinet. I mean, it was it was a low time. I just decided mm -hmm. to stay alone. Who would want to hear about my dog? Unless someone's going to beat down the door asking me about the dog. Unless someone's going to say, hey, I can tell from things you're posting or from something Jack said that you're really sad. I'm going to come and be with you. Mm -hmm. I, th there was no way that I was going to. I'm not a, hey, can you come over? I'm, I'm mm -hmm. scared and I'm worried and I need help. Mm -hmm. um, so I wish I would have. Yeah, I wish I would have done that differently. I think there would have been a healthier way to handle that. And I think because I let it get so bad, it's that thing about when I say it's something I'm not over. It's like, I feel like I saw a, a level of sadness that like, it's like you look at it and you've seen it and you can't unsee it. 
Mm-hmm. It's like, oh God, I I hate that I know that 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 that's there, and that that will yeah. be a part of my my future again sometime. I'm going to lose many people I really care mm-hmm. about, and another dog I really care about. I wish I had, yeah, if I had been a little bit healthier about it and made it soft, been softer, lighter with myself, I think I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel almost so like haunted by how sad I was once. Mm-hmm. Do you yeah. know what I mean? If that yeah. <laughs> feels it crazy. It does but. make me think about when you were talking about after Charlie passed and, and you were seeing your nephew, Leo, mm-hmm. and how... I, I'm a big fan of Leo. I follow Leo on Me Instagram. Too. But um, <laughs> I think he's a great, great little kid. He's but, you know, best. he was, what, like four or five at the time, I imagine? Yeah. And yeah. just sort of him just, are you still sad about Charlie? Are you sad Charlie's gone? You know, and just yeah. him trying to, like, open that conversation from this child's innocence. And then you talk to him. Like, you you started to say, like, yeah, I'm, I'm sad about Charlie. And, you know, so you pushed adults away it sounds like but you were open to having at some level a conversation with Leo about that and I wonder if that you know was it easier because he wasn't an adult he didn't have preconceived ideas about grief or about you know about sadness or about loss Um, and there was no sort of judgment to be had because he's he's a kid yeah I don't know if it's this story or another one I talk about it but, you know, I, I avoided my nephew, who was like five then, for, you know, a few weeks after it happened. You know, Leo was around when he was there the whole time, and his mom really wants him to, like, see the world and understand some adult concepts. And mm-hmm. he always asked me about his illness and, you know, uh, you know, what are different procedures. And, you know, he was really trying to say stereopathic radiation. I mean, just listening to him try to say that word for months was just its own treat, you know. But a couple weeks after, you know, Charlie died when I decided to see him and, you know, he, he, he asked me how I was and, and he did it like he literally put his hand on mine like an adult, would, like he, he kind of did the thing that I'd been wanting an adult to do. And at first, I think in that moment, I thought, see, if every adult just was this open and childlike about blah, 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 but here's the rub. And this goes back to why I don't blame other people. I don't think if he wasn't him, and I think if an adult did the exact same thing he did, I would not have answered them and connected with them the way that I did mm-hmm. because the person doing it was Leo and he was a child. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, he was only five, but there's a lot to be said for knowing a child genuinely cares about you. You can say it's yeah. childish. Oh, kids love people. Like, I yeah. know that kid loves me. So yeah. the way that I could answer him my three best friends in LA could have taken me out for tacos and a margarita and reached across the table and touched my hand and be like, Hey, are you still sad? And I don't think I would have, you know, and cause I told Leo, I was like, yeah, I was like this. Re-. I mean, I also tried to at a certain point when I felt it, you know, it's like, you, you know, let's are you still hungry? Let's, <laughs> you want to go see matinee? You know, like I still, you know, <laughs> tried to like cut it off at the past before it got too heavy, but like, yeah, I mean, it was it was great to have him around. And and he still, he still, like, will, you know, say things about Frank. He's like, oh, that's like what Charlie used to do. Or, like, we mm. have a little picture of Charlie, our friend made, and he'll I'll see him looking at it sometimes. Oh, Charlie. Aww, you know, like, sweet. you know, that dog is a part of his life. And, you know, he moved to L.A. right when Charlie was sick, like, right mm. when Charlie was entering the depths of it. And I, that was even its own burden for me. Like, I was like, mm-hmm. God, I get, I get 
my nephew with my sister-in-law, who's a single mother, trying to you know do this whole new life in LA. We're putting them up, and we're putting them up in this house that we're literally sidebarred, being evicted from, while our dog's in a cancer treatment center, and we're getting calls at all hours of the night. And then he comes home with a cone and a bell and a monitor, shaved in five spaces, and it's like, "Welcome to LA, little boy." You know, um, <laughs> even even that part of it felt. Um, God, yeah, it was just a, it was a rough, it was, it was a rough, yeah. it was a rough time. rough time. It would have been a rough time anyway, but it just felt really compounded. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. One of the other things that I was, was cheering when I was listening to your story, sort of like uh, Meg Ryan and when Harry met Sally, I was like, yes, <laughs> yes. When you were talking <laughs> about Rainbow Bridge and how you just didn't feel like that was supportive to you and that, you know, people, oh, he, he's at the Rainbow Bridge. He's so happy now, you know, and, and that obviously that is well-intentioned, but if you're not religious or if you just don't embrace the idea of, you know, this fictional, you know, the, this Rainbow Bridge place, that that can land poorly. And, um, yeah. You know, I think a lot of people are familiar with the concept of Rainbow Bridge and they think that that's supportive somehow. And I don't find that supportive. And I know a lot of people also don't. But, you know, do you have ideas about what you wish those people would have said instead? You know, did you find it helpful if people offered their own sort of grief experiences, like, oh, when my dog died, blah, 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 you know, or were you just too deep in your own grief to really care about anybody else's experience? Well, two things about that. One thing is that I'm not necessarily a religious person, but I'm fascinated by this repetition of people who have near death or death experiences saying they saw a bright white light. And I love when you like go deep on reading about like, what's happening neurologically. There's some really interesting stuff about how, you know, when you die, your body floods with all sorts of naturally produced chemicals, and you probably Mm -hmm. do have a pretty explosive fucking awesome acid trip, right? Like, that probably involves to a large degree, like, playing back some tape, you know what I mean? (laughs) And in that sense, and who knows where I'll be, maybe in five years I'll be Namasteing in a Buddhist temple. I won't. Um, but like wherever I am, let, I'll, let's say I'm a Presbyterian also. I won't. But whatever I am, whatever I am, at least for now, if I have that thing and there's that huge explosion, I hope Charlie's like the first person that's like, yeah, they told me to meet you here. Let's go on a trip, man. <laughs> like, like in theory, it's such a lovely, beautiful thing. And I think the language uh-huh. around it can get really saccharine. And that's what kind of makes me, ugh, even though I get mm-hmm. the intention. But I remember, like, one of the things I found most helpful was my friend Randy Sharp, who was the director and created the theater company, Axis Theater in New York, where I did shows for years, where I first did my solo show, Bad Kid. She is a a deep and profound lover of animals and dogs. And I can't talk about the extent to which she helped me in so many ways as I was, Jack and I were navigating Charlie's journey. I remember she said to me once, it was one of the nights when I went, yeah. <clears throat> it was one of the nights where I went to stay with Charlie in the vet center and, you know, they would, they literally just, I mean, I think they all, everyone that worked there was like, yeah, this dude's days are numbered and we can tell this guy really cares about him. So let's make this really as nice as we can. Not realizing that we would actually get to take him home, but, well, you know, only for a few weeks, but, um, 
I was there one night in this, like, I remember the room had this bright rust colored salmon paint and um, some a couple bad, cute dog paintings, but I have notes. Um, and uh, <laughs> they put me in there and then they'd wheel in, they'd wheel in Charlie on it, looked like one of those plastic. You know when they wheeled a projector into your third grade classroom <laughs> and it was kind of on like a weird plastic molded, like a, it looked like it was made of a hard candle material, beige. Mm. They would wheel that in with just the most luxurious like Queen of the Nile Cleopatra blanket pillow thing on top and Charlie would be there just with like, again, the shave spots and ivy that they had temporarily unported of fluids. And he would just be looking at me with eyes like, oh, this fuck, this is exhaust. And I was like, I know. And they'd wheel him into me. And sometimes, depending on how well he felt, I would take him down off it. Sometimes this night in question, though, I uh, I left him up on it because they brought in his little different, they'd bring in like four or five little cardboard cartons with different little bits of wet food, just hoping that one of them would get him to want to eat. And he didn't have a lot of head control then. He was pretty heavily drugged and, you know, they were still trying to shrink the tumor. And I remembered he would like lift his head and then he would try to get his mouth on the food, but then he would kind of sometimes lose, you know, like neck control. So his face would kind of go in. And there was a weird combination of really funny and really awful. And Randy Sharp, dear friend from New York, was like, hey, if you're there tonight and you want to FaceTime me, I'd love to say hi. Because she had known Charlie in New York when we lived there. And, yeah. and I remember um, that I FaceTimed her. And, um, you know, I set up the phone so that she could see me and Charlie at the same time. And I remember, you know, seeing our face in the phone. And he looked up at the phone and, like, you know, God, he had a patch missing from his neck and his eyes weren't both opening and he just had his food smeared. And I remember Randy just, like, looking at me and, like, holding her heart and just crying. Like, she didn't try to, like, she didn't do that, like, oh, little slugger's trying, you know. She let me know that it looked awful. (laughs) She let me know in that. And then she said, you're doing everything you can for him. And then she just said, this fucking sucks. She's (laughs) like, what you're going through is brutal and awful. And it's probably going to be worse before it's over. And I'm so sorry that you have to go through this. It's, She said, I've done it three times. And it never gets easier. And I fucking hate it. And I still remember it as being one of the weirdly most supportive things anyone did for mm-hmm. me the whole time. Because they did a few things. They didn't invite themselves to. They asked if they could actually be a part of the process in a mm-hmm. time that mattered to me. And then they arrived there and they chose to not like pour a bunch of fucking sugar into my wound. And and they didn't like censor themselves. Mm-hmm. And then I think we probably sat on FaceTime in mostly silence for about 15, 20 more minutes. Yeah. As Charlie would kind of look at her and then drift off and then I would cry a little bit. And she'd be like, does he still I'm like, yeah, he likes this, but not this one. And then he would mm-hmm. lift his head and we'd laugh and she'd cry a little bit. And then she's like... I was like, okay, well, thank you so much. He's like, I love you. And we let each other go. And it was like, you know, it was just, sometimes it's just nice to hear. I mean, I think the reason it was so affecting because it was someone telling me not only was I not crazy, but there was a degree to which I could even be going through more and it would be valid. Right. You know? Yeah. And having that, those feelings validated, you know, that, that's the 
community support, you know, whether it's a friend or whether it's a group of people, you know, that I think is missing for so many people that are navigating tough choices and and medical conditions and ultimately loss, you know, they just don't have that network of support or people just don't know. I mean, same with when humans die, you know, a lot of times people don't know what to say. I mean, you know, there's a lot of things that people say that maybe aren't the best things like, Oh, well, he had a great life, you know, at least he's not suffering anymore. And, and those things may be true, but they're not particularly helpful at that moment when someone's really deep in, in that grief or deep in that loss. Yeah. There's a thing that someone said to me once, or they typed to me that I read and I try to repeat, I mean, not that each thing is different as people lose their pets on social media and in your life on Facebook, but like, Someone said to me when I was like, I think I posted a thing about like Charlie and how hard we're trying and hoping we're not making a mistake and that he's in pain, but doing da, 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 but it didn't work and blah, blah, blah. Now he's gone. And someone said, you know, a lot of those things, but they said at one point, wow, y'all were really lucky to have each other. And that, that really, that's something I try to remember or say to people and, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and again, right? Like, who knows if it's not, you know, you know, there's never the right thing. One person's right thing is not someone else's yeah. right thing. And I think yeah. that's so amazing about the work you're doing as this kind of doula in that someone can go to you without like maybe a, a bit really long backlog of history and triggers and behavior just as a person and you can navigate, oh, who are you? Okay, maybe you need this. But like, I think that's the thing that for me, I've tried to tell people when they're at this part where like, you know, because I think I always, you know, you can simplify these relationships. You know, we, we, we got Frankie and we were going to foster him and then we kept him. Mm-hmm. And then we were like, well, let's foster another dog being like, well, this is going to be a nightmare because we don't know if we want two dogs. And he, this dog's obviously not moving on. And that dog was the coolest little dog. We loved her. But it was so clear mm-hmm. in three, four weeks when we found her at our home that it was time to go. No, yeah. like she's bad or chews things up. Frankie loved her. It was just like, oh, this is so cool. You're not ours. <laughs> and I try to remember that when I think about, wow, y'all were lucky to have each other. It's not just a dog and a person that had a relationship. It is a dog and a person that had a relationship that they had because to some degree they were together for some kind of reason. Because mm-hmm. just because you're with the dog doesn't mean you keep the dog. Every dog mm-hmm. isn't made for you. Every person isn't made for a dog. So I do think there's something lovely to this idea. Oh, wow. Y'all were lucky like you found each other or had mm-hmm. each other. Because people yeah. find dogs and move dogs on all the time. Like, it's mm-hmm. tra- you know, it can be transitory yeah. as dogs find yeah. homes and places and their people. So, yeah, I try to remember that. And I've said that to a few people or typed yeah. that to a few people if I don't know them really well. And I, I hope it brings them something. But I also know that when you're in it, you're, you're in it. There's not much yeah. to say. You just got to go through it, you know? Yeah. Yep. I, I found a card. A friend of mine lost one of their animals recently. And I found a card on Etsy and it said, it's shitty. There's no good card for this. <laughs> and it's just, yeah. you know, like I'm thinking about you. I, I love you. I I'm concerned about what you're going through, but this is just a shitty situation and no words that I can come up with are, are really going to help. But, you know, yeah. sort of similar to what your, your friend did, you know, just sort of leveling and being like, I see that this is shitty and, and it's not, I'm not going to be able to make this better. I'm not going to be able to fix it. Um, but yeah. I'm here with you in that moment. And in whatever you're going through, I'm here. And we can both agree that this is a shitty situation. Yeah. I mean, wh- one of the things, you know, for all this, like, navigating and being careful, you know, I have a friend named Perry. 
she's awesome. You know, we're we're close. We don't get to see each other a lot. I see her and her husband every few months. You know, we we knew each other a little bit in New York, talked together a few times. The day after Charlie died, Jack had to go do stuff. And Perry messaged me and she's like, hey, I have something for you and I want to bring it over. And I thought, oh, okay. And and I love and trust Perry and she's nothing but light and joy, but I probably hadn't seen her then in a couple months. And I, I had that switch that was like, well, no. You know, and, and after this, I would fall into my like space, mm-hmm. you know, not even letting yeah. Leo in. But she kind of was like, I'm coming over and I'm bringing you yeah. something. And I still tell her to this day when I see her, she came over and she just brought a little something and she just hung out with me for like 45 minutes and we had a coffee and she told me she loved me and she hugged me and she left. And it is still one of the most, I'm so thankful like for that, you know, like for all the ways we try to, well, leave people to have their space, da, 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 da. Like I still think about my nature and the way I was and like, I needed that that day. Like that, that's mm-hmm. one of the most, and, and there was no, we didn't really talk a lot about it. Like she mm-hmm. arrived. That fucking sucked. I'm, how are you? I'm okay. Yeah. I'm okay. Oh, what did, has the couch always, yeah, we moved the couch on. You know what I mean? It was like, yeah. so like, I don't know. I think there's all kinds of ways to be there for people and you never know the way a person is. Are you pushing too hard? Are you not pushing hard enough? Mm-hmm. Do they need to be held and cried? Do they just need to be asked if that couch has always been there? Like whatever it is, <laughs> you know, like I yeah. think just letting people know that you're there, you know, mm-hmm. and actually being there. They're like, actually, could you just, could you just bring me lunch? I don't mm-hmm. want to see you. I just need you to leave it at the door. <laughs> yes. I'll do it. Uh, yeah. yeah. And I think people have a need that they, you know, when someone that they care about is suffering or going through something, I think most of us have a desire to help and to feel like we're doing something to help them. Mm-hmm. And it's it's hard for people, you know, who are fixers or who are caretakers yeah to to not act in those moments you know to not be like i'm coming over i'm i'm bringing you cupcakes you know yeah. um even if the recipient may not feel like they want that at that moment sometimes the people around that person just they need to feel like they're doing something yeah yeah i mean i i still i think i talked about the story but i i still remember that you know when we went to do what we had to do when we came home our you know our fridge was just full of food yeah. that Jack's yeah. sister put in there and you yeah. know there were flowers and the flowers were nice it was mm-hmm. a very simple card like we're sorry but I remember the fridge of food yeah like yeah. I uh, like the fridge of food for for days after that you know I would like I would go to like make an egg and be like at least I have my family <laughs> you know like it was uh <laughs> you know so like you know, again, it's that idea of like, what's the grand gesture that I can make that's going to fix this person versus no grand gesture is going to fix this person. What can Mm -hmm. I do that will make their life, you know, you know, and then I say that we, you probably know a person like the back of your hand that's going to suffer loss. And you know, the only thing that will keep that person from spiraling is if they have stuff to do. So for that person, no, they need to go to Trader Joe's. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to take them out for a Negroni, but they're going to go mm-hmm. to this. You know what I mean? Like, that's what yeah. I mean. There's no, like, recipe for it. Yeah. 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 Everyone's yeah. grief is, you know, individual. And even if you've gone through grief before, if you've lost other animals or you've lost people, yeah. that's not necessarily how you're going to navigate a new loss, you know? So your loss with Charlie is going to be 
very likely different than your loss with Frankie whenever that comes, you know, yeah. And, yeah. and we can't expect that, well, this is this how much time I took off from work last time, you know, yeah. you know, last year we we lost our 14 year old dog Barbo. And, you know, I work with dogs for a living. So navigating pet loss is difficult on its own. But when your job is also dealing with other people and talking about their dogs, it exacerbated my loss. It exacerbated my grief. And I took weeks off from work because I couldn't deal with, you know, talking to clients who are complaining about their dog jumping without thinking, well, at least you still have a dog that jumps, yeah. <laughs> you know, at least your dog's not dead, you know? And so I had to process that. I had to work through that. So I took off weeks from work, whereas John, my husband dove right back into work, like pretty much the next day. And I think, you know, my processing of grief is very different than his processing of grief. And that's just unique to that individual. And when we eventually lose our other dog, you know, that may be different. Like there may be that grief is going to look different than it looked like a year ago for Barbo. So, you know, I think it's important to keep that in mind and not think like, well, I've already been through this. You know, it's, it's I know how to handle it the next time because I don't think that's true. Yeah. When that was happening, I was thinking about your job. Kate, and like, I just don't know how I could compartmentalize that. Like, you know, when Charlie was sick, you know, my, my main work was storytelling coaching. I mean, it's part of my main work is still storytelling coaching. So it's like, oh, great. I'm going to bear witness to like, whatever I'm going to hear when I'm trying to, you know, and Jack's job was uh, making beautiful cocktails for sometimes mm-hmm. famous people. And like, what is your normal that you're going back to? I mean, the morning after Charlie died, I had had on the calendar, you know, because we got Charlie back home and I, you know, it was presumably going to be okay. And then, you know, a few weeks after we got him home, he had a seizure and they couldn't stop. And we went in and um, let go of him. And um, I had had this meeting with people from like three different continents to do this Google Dublin project where I was this huge storytelling thing and I was going to travel to Dublin. I mean, I did do it, but the Zoom meeting with everyone on it was that was that morning. And I realized like driving home in like just a numb, just like in a a state, I had that meeting and I chose, I was like, I, I need to just keep the meeting. Like, you know, you know, because, you know, morning is weird. Like you think, right in the moment that the bad thing happens is going to be the worst. And that's kind of not true. It's kind of a weird, you know, cuckoo state where like, you know, you're kind of still sure. Come over and bring me a candle. Like there's some weird stuff that happens. <laughs> and then you're like, Oh no, <laughs> the curtain. <laughs> um, and I kept that meeting and it was just so weird that compartmentalizing. Cause you know, it was just, we were talking to people at Google about going to Dublin and teaching, you know, presentational storytelling and I still remember to this day, I had a, a, my friend Jenny, who's this incredible corporate trainer, and she was working with me on it. And um, when we were on the call, like she knew that, you know, we're friends. She knew what I was going through. And she's like, we don't, I'll do this alone. And I was like, no, I, I need this. And I hadn't slept because I didn't, I mean, I just laid down until the meeting at 7 a.m. And then I got on. And I... I don't think I've ever waxed so passionately nostalgic about the craft 
as I did that morning in that state. I looked at Brady Bunch squares and people, you know, people that <laughs> worked for Google, like th- this isn't like I'm someone about their solo show, they were in their squares and I was talking about, because if you're not presenting with passion, if you don't have something, you know, I'm talking about like scrolling video, like an app or something. <laughs> and I always remember this feeling like, oh, like, and seeing my friend Jenny in her squares, everyone else was being like laughing and being moved and getting really serious that down in the square, my friend Jenny was just, tears in her eyes just like and I was like well I can't look at you because I knew (laughs) she knew I was like oh David is operating at this level he's this connected to this moment running on fumes and then later when we still joke we got the call and then we ended up going to Dublin and it was like I still think they were like that guy that's a passionate motherfucker. We've got to get him to Ireland to teach our people. I mean, they didn't know what had happened. I just got on the call in like a, yeah. but you know, that whole process of like the way your brain is firing or not firing mm-hmm. for the weeks after it happens, it's wacky. Yeah. And those, you know, you're right. Like that day it happens, that's not when it hits the hardest. It's the days that follow, the weeks that follow when, that absence is so noticeable in your life. So, you know, with, with Barbo at the end, he was getting medicated five times a day. Our lives revolved around this medication schedule and making sure he was drugged if there was going to be thunderstorms, because that was triggering anxiety and that would make him pace, but he couldn't pace because he had joint issues and pain. And, and so everything was revolved around this schedule. And then suddenly he's gone and you wake up the next morning and you're like, I don't have to jump out of bed to medicate him at six o'clock in the morning because he's not here. I don't have to think, oh, can I go do that thing? Am I going to be back in time for his lunchtime medication because he's not here? And, And those sort of daily routines that you just fall into the absence of those routines, I really, at least for me, you know, is just a slap in the face, a reminder of like, yeah, he's not here anymore. Um, and it takes a while to like settle into a new normal without those routines. Did did you, for Barbo, did you have like a bunch of papers, like or forms, pill journal? Like, did you, did you track it pretty well without so, um, <laughs> documentation? We had, John at, uh, has pictures, but we had this gigantic pill box and then a second pillbox because all of his pills couldn't fit in the pillbox. So there was a pillbox that had like, I think four slots. And then we had a standalone one that was just one slot. And so all the pills were in that and we knew what time of day, you know, each slot was, but that's how we kept track of everything. Cause there were so many medications towards the yeah. end that we just couldn't, you know, keep that in our brains. Yeah, we had little form, and especially with two of us, if one of us had to go to work just to know what was given and what wasn't. And mm-hmm. I have those papers somewhere. I mean, again, yeah. it's like that weird, it's like I stored them away because it, like they were just there on the counter. It's like, oh, I don't have to yeah. do this. And yep. he had a lot of, he had pills, but he also had like, we went, we got some like special, supposedly very special like CBD liquid thing that I started taking with Charlie the last, I was like, one for you, 10 for me, um, <laughs> like the last two weeks. And then I still remember the one time he was on, a, what was it called? Uh, gabapentin. Do you know what yep. gabapentin is? Like, yep. I still remember, I still remember the time I actively, with planning in mind, Googled, what does gabapentin do for people? Thinking, I need to relax. I mean, if this does this for him. Yeah. 
It's a human medication. They give it to people after surgery yeah. to help them sleep, but it's primarily yeah. a nerve pain medication. Yeah. But I never, Barbara was on I never took that, but ridiculous amounts of gabapentin when he like his last couple of weeks, he was on, I think 1800 milligrams three times a day. He was getting so God. much gabapentin. Jeez. <laughs> um, oh, he's a, yeah, he's a big boy. He was too. a bigger dog. But yeah. so I have a question about, you know, this is five years sort of post Charlie passing. And, you know, when you told your story, it was very raw. It was like a month or two after that had happened. And you had said in, in that, that you wanted to get to a place where you could walk by places and remember happy times. Like, oh, that's where he loved napping. That's where, you know, he'd sit on the wrapping paper during Christmas. Like, you know, I'm imagining you got to that point, but was it a stark, like one moment you weren't there and now you are, or has it been this sort of gradual transition to being able to smile at pictures and videos instead of crying? Yeah. I, you know, I, I guess my instinct is to say that it was gradual I don't think I kind of had a moment, you know. You know, it's interesting because everyone everyone heals differently. We got Frankie, you know, six months later, which I think for a lot of people is maybe, I don't know, for some people, I've met some people that are like, we were at the rescue that week. Like, that's how they go. And then mm -hmm. I know some people to this day who were like, oh, no, I'll never get another dog. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, Freddie was my dog. And that's, yeah. and I'm like, Wow. So maybe, I don't know, depending on, but you know, when we, when we got Frankie, I remember some puppy times with Frankie where I was alone at night at our house. We, we had moved and it was really heavy moving into the house because the home that Charlie was sick in was a nightmare by the time we left it because the mm -hmm. couple decided to sell it. They were breaking the lease and it was essentially an eviction and we were just so mad because we were finally starting to make a home there and to be dealing with losing our dog slowly and all those bills and having to find a new home. Like it was really, it was infuriating. And the home that we moved to after that was this beautiful little house on a hill with a gorgeous yard and a, literally a white picket fence, like literally mm. a white picket fence. And the reason it was available to us at the rate that it was is because I'm a part-time professor here at Occidental College in LA and they have some faculty housing. So mm. your faculty, you know, you could live in it for years. If you're part-time like me, you're on a list to sublet. And there was a professor I knew, he was going on um, sabbatical. And I remember to this day going to look at the house and meeting the sweetest guy that lived there. And he had like two cats and he clearly was an animal lover. And when we were looking at the house, I just had this really strong feeling. I'm like, oh, we're going to live here. It's going to be so great. And mm -hmm. I could tell he loved animals, so we very quickly opened up about what we had just gone through with mm. getting Charlie better. And I got to tell this guy, like, it's going to be so great to leave this toxic place that, in a way, there's some weird connection. I, I need a proper therapist to figure that out. I feel like that <laughs> house made Charlie sick. And I feel mm. like that experience made him sicker. Like, I get a little woo-woo mm. about... Charlie was sick and his situation was made worse and maybe we lost it because it was full of bad energy and da-da-da-da-da, mm. like all that fucking bullshit. That's fucking bullshit. <laughs> but I do that to myself and I have this fond memory of this house. So when we were like, great, we're going to live there in a month. And then Charlie died unexpectedly. Mm -hmm. It was like moving to this beautiful place that I could not believe that we had found in LA when we'd been mm -hmm. living in little studios and apartments. And... I was so grateful and it was so lonely. 
and mm. it felt like it was marked everywhere by Charlie. You know, like we, you know, people talk about leaving houses where they lose someone, a pet or a human, because the shadow mm. is always there and they need yeah. to like wipe the slate. And I, it was weird because I kind of felt like I would have almost done that if I hadn't had like built that sandcastle. Like we saw that place as the place that would rescue all three of us. Yeah. And I started to build it. And I think for me, part of the getting better was like I was I was happy to be in that house, but very lonely. And it was a beautiful place to be lonely. I could watch the sunset. We had a white picket fence and <laughs> da, 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 da. And I was starting to work again a little bit. And, I was, and you know, I wasn't a mess. I was getting better. And I had Groundlings, which is the thing I was working at doing here. So I had plenty of opportunities to laugh and be around joy. But I think the beginning of really starting to heal and think about Charlie specifically go down that hallway in a way that didn't lead to that trap door again was Frankie. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, I think getting or, or, you know, you could argue a dog, you know, my mind, Frankie. Mm-hmm. And I remember when we got him, he came to us in the dead of night, wrapped up too tight in his blanket and he'd been vomiting because she said he was just in it. What we didn't know is that he was car sick. And I would discover that the next day when I took him to get breakfast tacos and he vomited all over my car. <laughs> And I remember putting him in his little cage and just him being like nervous, but so like at home. Mm-hmm. And, and that was really, I was like, oh, great. You know, I'm not, it wasn't like Charlie was home, but there was a little bit of a feeling like the intention of that place, the find, the prospect of it being a happy place and not mm-hmm. an awful, tragic, temporary, sad place. Mm-hmm. It was like I was reclaiming that thing that I thought like I lost, right? Yeah. And I think that was the first time I was like, oh, I'm gonna be a dog family my whole mm-hmm. life. Like I'm like this is my like I'm not gonna not be a dog person in in my life. Mm-hmm. So now we you know we keep a picture of Charlie up and we have his ashes in a little urn and his collars on it. I think to some people it might be mm-hmm. really a morbid tableau. And it was a morbid tableau. I remember when we first had it being like that's dark that I have that right there by the records, by our favorite plant. Like it's not like in a corner. You know, mm-hmm. by, by by my office where like, oh, you know. Yeah. And now it's still presented in the same way, just as just as big. But when I see it, it's like, uh, and, I, and I catch myself done. I'm like, hey, Charlie. Like, I'll say mm-hmm. it, you know, like yeah. out loud. Just like, oh, yep. you're passing. So, so, yeah, I don't know. Like I said, yeah. I think that Rainbow Bridge is BS, but no tea, no shade, if that's your jam. Yeah. But like, yeah. if, if I have my explosive death dream... Uh, when I have my explosive <laughs> death dream, I, I'd, I'd be re- I'd be very happy if I just get to. Oh, yeah. hey Charlie, that'd be that'd yeah. be pretty cool. That'd be a great gateway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think you know having a tribute or some sort of shrine or something is really healing for a lot of people. You know, we have our dog's ashes and and collars and bandanas and you know little tokens of memorial. You know, to remember them. Do you spread them anywhere? But there, we have like curio cabinets and they're yeah. on the curio cabinets in our dining room. I love, um, I love that. I, we have all of, we have all of Charlie. And I sometimes think about, I mean, I think that was a real, we talked about spreading them somewhere. And I was always like, oh, well, you know, wh- where did your animal really enjoy being? And I was like, with us. Home. <laughs> yeah. 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 We yeah. did spread some of Barbo. Um, we did not spread any of Bandit because Bandit wasn't good out in the world. Um, but oh, Barbo, yeah. we had very specific, well, we spread, both of our dogs were part of our wedding. So we went back to where we got married. We spread some ashes there. We spread ashes in a couple different spots that we wanted to 
to put That's him. Great. Do you still have the Charlie Rock or did you eventually get yep. rid of the Charlie Rock? I still have the Charlie Rock. I still, still have, have the Charlie, Charlie Rock. Rock. Is it part of your little shrine? It is. Um, there was a second rock. There was a second rock I found when we moved that spoke oh. to me. And I, and just to be clear, not a rock. Per- it's not like I, I don't have drawers of rocks. That This one <laughs> reminded me of, it's just the two. But yeah, I, yeah, I, I have it. It, right. it. It's weird. It's weird. Like I, you know, I feel like, God, it's so funny to think about that and how kind of rainbow bridgey it felt to use a, a metaphor. Like, and... And now, you know, I mean, that's the weird thing about it. Like, now I can look at that as like, oh, like, that's, that was a way that psychologically I was like negotiating my pain. And mm-hmm. to me, that doesn't make it, it's, it's, it's kind of like the death dream, not to bring this back again. It doesn't make it any less special to me or, or any less real. Like, I'm not like, oh, I was in mourning and I was really woo woo. That rock is just a rock. Like, mm-hmm. I still love that rock. I'm like, oh, yeah. God, this is, this yeah. is, this is the rock that was there in my path. Mm-hmm. so that I could focus a little bit of really manic energy somewhere to, so I could save myself, yeah. you know, yep. and lift myself up a little bit. So, yeah, ah, the rock. Yeah. Yeah. God, it's so crazy how you get distance from that stuff. And then you're just like, oh, I can tell this story. And then it's like, yeah, I I think those stories are so helpful, though, for other people to hear, because, you know, you do feel alone when you're going through it. So having stories like yours and and having other people share their own stories of what they've gone through, I think is really healing for other people and it helps them feel less alone. And I think that's really what people need when they're navigating tough medical decisions, navigating loss, navigating grief. I think, you know, we need to create a space where death isn't so taboo with humans and with our pets that we're having these open conversations about it so that people feel more comfortable talking to other people about it. And I think that's really, you know, part of what has driven me into this line of work is to just help people navigate that and make it an approachable topic instead of something that, oh, I can tell that person's hurting, but I don't want to talk to them because I don't know what to say. Like opening those lines of communication and just letting people know, like, if you want to talk, you can talk. If you don't want to talk, that's fine. But it's, there's nothing taboo about it. Like we're all going to navigate loss at some point in our lives. And so we need to create a healthy, safe space for people to have those conversations. Well, thanks for doing what you do specifically in this lane I think it's really meaningful and I'm just glad to know that it exists for people. You know, like I said, I I, I didn't do it right and I would have liked to have done my morning. You know, there's no wrong way to do morning, don't get me wrong, but I think there's a healthier way to, to process a lot of it. So I'm glad you're out there doing it. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing your story. Well, that is all for this week's Classic Risk episode. Again, you can find David Crabb at davidcrabb.net and you can find Kate LaSala at rescuedbytraining.com. And remember, it's episodes like this one that show just how special 
risk is. We very dearly need your help to keep the show up and running. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash risk. Or if you want to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. I found a dream that I could speak to. A dream that I can call my own. So, um, just a little comment on something you said earlier about Frankie. Let him sleep in your bed. <laughs> From a professional, let him sleep in your bed. <laughs> Kate, there I, is... I mean, Kate, I, I hate to... Do, it's too late now. Like, there's no... Like, it's not gonna change. I, it's, it's beyond I'm our all control. For, no, I wholeheartedly, if you want him in your bed, let him in your bed. If he wants to be in your bed, that's great. There's no bad stuff. You know, he's not going to be in charge of your house by you letting him sleep in your bed. So from a qualified professional, <laughs> embrace him being in your bed. Enjoy those snuggles, you know, oh, great. it's guilt-free. Those are the moments that when he's gone, you're going to remember those moments, those little shared embraces and and snacks and movie time on the couch and sharing your popcorn like those are the little life moments that you are going to remember and carry you through in decades when he's gone it's not yeah oh he walked really nicely next to me on a leash that one day those aren't going to be the memories you remember you know those those personal moments where you're connecting with him and and sharing your bed or sharing your popcorn like those are the things that to to snuggle he stays at the foot of the bed and and then jack irritates him by pulling him up to be held which he'll take for a little while but then he just goes back to the foot of the bed versus charlie who literally would tunnel you'd wake up and you'd be somehow like how is the dog past my feet under the cover Whoa!